He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney. He is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, November 25, 2023. Can I help you? Yes, I'm calling to say Shabbat Shalom. It's the troubadour. Truby, happy Thanksgiving. And to you too, Craig. How did it go? Well, it was really nice. It was quiet. Um, just Lisa's sisters visiting us, and uh, um, we talked to the kids, which was great. Had a nice dinner. Very relaxing today, That more of the same. Lots of food. No skiing? No skiing. How, did, how, was your, how was your dinner? It was fantastic. We had about 20 people over at my sister-in-law, Julie's, and it was amazing. But I want to talk to you about your song because it's perfect. We give thanks. Who, who came up with that song? And Was it a Thanksgiving idea? No, no, that song was not. Um, it, it kind of, uh, it, now it wears the cloak of Thanksgiving because it's a perfect song for it. But no, it's just a song of gratitude to a, a higher power, I shall say. Well, that's it. You keep saying uh, people are going to hear this song and it's perfect. Ari Armstrong is on. His uh, book, Getting Over Jesus, Finding Meaning and Morals Without God, now, he's an atheist, but you you are a believer. Well, I don't know. I couldn't say, I can't say unequivocally I'm a believer, but I, 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 I like the idea of giving thanks. I know. I, I don't know if I believe in, in, in a customary way in, when you, we talk about belief in God, but that's, you know. That's, Do it's you know what question. Ari believes in in the natural world? The kind of things right. you sing about in your song, and we're talking about the light. We're thinking a lot about Jewish people, and as we're giving thanks, let's give thanks that about a dozen Israeli hostages were released, so, a dozen so Asian hostages. It's it's so good, but it's not great until oh, over no. 200 more are released. And no, why are they true. taken in the first place? But Well, no, that is true. But given the circumstances, Craig, it yes. feels like maybe a little bit of ice breaking, which can lead to more. Um, I mean, any any, you know, any any movement in the forward direction with these with regards to these hostages. Right. Is they say good. any. Human life is an entire universe. Yes. So it's, yes. Uh, and Ari talks about the natural world. You give tribute to the star in the evening sky, and you have the bells of freedom. That's what we're, we are worried about getting shut down and why yeah. we dwell on politics so much. And then that whole concept of light. I think that's the first word of your song, right? We're bathed right, in light. Right, I'm bathed, I'm bathed in light, yes. And thinking yes. about, we like to think it's, of the Jewish people as bringing light unto the nations, right? Right. That's right. But some people don't want the light on. They want the lights out. So Well, right. They want themselves in. <laughs> and, and then the lights go out. 
Right. And uh, I think I know your beliefs because it's a lot like mine. We were raised as Jewish kids. It's a lot more complicated than just religion. Hashem. It's a when culture. We walk, right. We say, we say Hashem when you and I are thankful. Hashem. But that means a lot to, you know, it means many different things to many people. But um, I and think Hashem, that's one thing you and I. You know, you know what Hashem means in Hebrew? Probably not. Probably not. I'm sure you've told me. It means the name, right? It means because when God was asked by Moses, hey, hey, what do I call you? And he said, he said, I am what I am, kind of like Popeye. See, that's a little sacrilegious. But it's the name. It's it's an acknowledgement there's something greater than us. And so... That's what always gets me a little about atheism, but I can understand. And Ari is so smart. And I think science is going to reveal so many things, but he gets us thinking about Christianity in ways that, as a Jew, I never thought of. But I did tell him this, and I think I speak for all Jews, and that includes you, that we kind of have an idea of what Christianity is about, right? You learned that, that Jesus died on a cross for other people's sins and right and it's like okay and and that's fine but it's like it, it it's just if if you didn't have faith it would seem like a sort of far-fetched story right it rose from the dead and it's like okay i I'd, I'd, I'd have to see that for myself but other people take it for faith and it's not like we don't have our own faith right we talk about right. Hashem. But it's a little right. more. I mean, it's a little more nebulous. Well, that's right. And I mean, as Jews, you know, we learn stories, right? Uh, miracles, miracles that 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 God bestowed upon, upon. Uh, well, I mean, the, it's, it all starts off with Genesis, right, and the creation, right, of Adam and Eve. But yeah, I, I think a lot. I don't think a lot of Jews. That's the you know the, the difference there is I don't think a lot of Jews take that liter take these stories literally right and we right? don't we don't really get taught about hell uh, other than we know christians think we might be going to hell but it's not really part of our theology but it is part of other people's theologies and it kind of affects us you know what i mean of course right it's the it's the it's yeah, the, and the fundamental same. it's yeah it's the core of so many religions is is you know I, and it's why people need religion it's like it's it's scary here we know we're going to die and we want some kind of um you know uh, relief from that fear right it's really scary if you go down a double black diamond slope at mary chain you what but that's, yeah, no, that, for me that it be would heaven. be but for you it's not scary it would be heaven if there was a, oh, about a foot of snow it, it would be hell for me but and the concept of heaven, I like to think, seize the day. You know, that's what our mantra is. Right. This is this live is this our life. heaven. This is our life. If you want to live forever, have children. And not just this is our life, but this is this is the life we have to be our best selves in. Right. That there's a there's a mandate to be as good a human being as you can possibly be right here and right now. Okay, I'm going to buy you a copy of this book because you are going to love it because Ari Armstrong, public intellectual, will be up right after your song. And I think it's beautiful on Thanksgiving. We did it, I think, last year, maybe every Thanksgiving because it's perfect. 
What's the title? Give thanks, right? You I give I give thanks. I give thanks. What about I me? Thanks. I can't give thanks to? No, but you can say, if you say these words, I give thanks, then you just did it. Beautiful. What a great concept. Shabbat shalom on this Shabbat Thanksgiving shalom. weekend. Troubadour, I give thanks. Oh, thank you, to Craig, you. and best to your family. Okay. Same, same to yours. Bye-bye. Bye.
gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Hey, being a lawyer is a matter of judgment. You have to know the law, the facts, but good judgment is essential. If you don't understand how Donald Trump is culpable for the crimes committed in his name, then I question your judgment. I have the good judgment to question Donald Trump. If you want a lawyer like that, instead of a knucklehead who believes in the MAGA propaganda, call Craig, 303-734-7156, 303-734-7156. I am Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Gosh, this is exciting. I'm here with a great author, a public intellectual. I just read his book, Getting Over Jesus, Finding Meaning and Morals Without God by Ari Armstrong. He was our guest a year ago, episode 126, and I knew he was writing this book, but my friend, congratulations. I think it's tremendous. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I'm surprised it's been that long since we were together before. Time has gone quick this last year for me. Right. But a lot of consequential things have happened. And I don't like to chew my cabbage twice because we talked about your upbringing. You're from Palisades. You were uh, brought up as a pretty devout Christian. You went to Pepperdine. And then your book kind of takes over from there. Why don't you summarize your journey in a nutshell? 126 does a good job, but people who are listening now to 183, tell them how you describe yourself. Sure. Well, I mostly grew up in Western Colorado. And my family was, I grew up in a deeply religious family. We went to an independent Protestant church in Palisade, which is right near Grand Junction. And so I did the usual things that you would do if you're deeply enmeshed in church, Bible study, youth camp youth study groups, things like that. So I would describe my religion as not as deeply fundamentalist as you might hear. You might hear stereotypes, but pretty, but very religious. Church was an important part of our lives, an important part of our our grandparents' lives. They were an important part of my life. So it was just something in the air I always grew up with and never, it's just, you grow, when you grow up with it, you don't really think much about being in there. It's like the fish in the water. You don't think about being in the water. So that was just part of my life. Is that a pun? I know a little Christian humor. Isn't fish a big part of it? Anyway, the fish symbol. Yeah, it sure is. And it used anyway, to be. Anyway, but you went to Christian summer camps. And I think 
a lot of Jewish kids get their Jewishness from that. Not me, because I was playing baseball, but I understand that that was a big part of your influence, right? Right. We went to week-long camps in the summer, and they still have this camp going on. And it's multiple churches in the valley would get together and fund this camp and help to staff it and such. And it's what you would expect, group singing, a lot of preaching, a lot of Bible study. And then there's this really cold creek that runs through the camp. So they would block off a little pool in the camp. And then if if there were some children, some kids, students who d- decided they needed to be saved, then they could go be baptized in this ice cold creek. I never did make it into the creek myself. I made it into the warm baptismal in my church uh, behind the stage. So Holy cow, I've read a lot of books. But, you know, you've, you go along with some public intellectual arguments, and then you come out in your book with some really right crosses, roundhouses, like just the concept of baptismal waters. You you really kind of belittle that as as kind of crazy. And, and what are we doing, folks? I, I forget how you put it exactly, but it was one of those wow moments for me. I didn't mean to belittle it in that sense. I mean, there's a sense in which it's... It's just... Now you describe it. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. It's 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 one of those things that's part of life growing up as a Protestant. You know, there's big differences between how Protestants view things and Catholics view things. And one thing I mentioned in the book is at one point in my church, there was a debate among some of the people as to who would make it into heaven and who would not. So one faction was pretty convinced that Catholics would not make it. And a major reason that they will not make it is because they're baptized as children and not when they're mature moral agents. And right. so for my church, baptism, once you're a moral agent, say, you know, 12, 13, whatever, then choosing to be baptized is a huge part of what we consider to be the proper religious rituals and rites. And so, you know what? Be little was a bad word. But the way you contrasted that, that these people are going to get into heaven, these aren't. Let me just back up a little bit to say you are brave, and I'm going to put forth some sections when you did come out with roundhouses, no doubt about it. But uh, I I want to tell everybody that they can read you at Colorado Pickaxe. That's amazing. self in Society is your podcast. You don't put it on that often. But did you see we both got mentioned by Corey Hutchins as Colorado podcasts. I did see that. And you definitely deserve to be at the top of that list. Um, You know, I've been kind of laying off of that of late just due to time constraints. Well, because uh, you are so prolific in your writing and you just wrote a great book. Well, you know, it's time consuming to do a podcast between the prep work. And then I was doing all of my video because I did video too, typically. So I would do video editing and then all the audio processing. It takes time. So it's just, you know, there's limited hours in the day and I have an eight-year-old and we're homeschooling. So there's a lot going on. And I'm just glad that I got this book out this year. That was my goal, to get it out this year. <laughs> right. Not and let it's it beautiful. I want to get to the headlines right now because my podcast, I think, has value because it comes every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Hostages, 13 of them have been returned and about a dozen Thai workers who worked the the farms in Israel. I saw that when I was there. What are your thoughts about October 7th? Because to me, it's sort of like Pearl Harbor, 9-11, all together. Certainly horrific. I mean, everybody who observes it knows that. The political ramifications of that are how it has 
split the left. And we're seeing that in Colorado with people like Elizabeth Epps and Tim Hernandez and then Representative Jode, I believe is how you say yes. her name. Who says they, that Israel's committing genocide. Right. And words along along those lines. And yeah, obviously I think that's totally inappropriate. I mean, you notice how I've never heard I've heard a lot of people say there should be a ceasefire, but I've never heard anybody point out Hamas surrendering would create the ceasefire. So if you're gonna say ceasefire, let's say let's put the blame where it's due, which is on Hamas's horrific assault on Israelis. And the fact that Hamas, I mean, what what saying a ceasefire out of context means is that you think Hamas should be able to attack Israel at will and just slaughter people and then run and hide among the civilian population. If you're saying, because that's what we're saying here, right? When you, if you can never, I mean, Israel does, they do as good a job as I think you reasonably can of saying, look, we're going we're gonna to go to war here, get the civilians out, right? Hamas doesn't do that when they're going to attack someplace. Israel is clearly trying to root out Hamas. If Hamas surrenders, we're not, we're done with the conversation. We're done with the, with the bloodshed which is objectively horrific on on both sides are suffering horrific losses of innocent life. But put the blame where it's due. That's, that's to my mind, is the crucial issue. It's Hamas's attack, Hamas's assault. The fact that, I mean, Hamas wanted civilian casualties, not only among the Israelis. Hamas wanted civilian casualties among the Palestinians. That serves their political interests, their interests in military tactics. I mean, hiding behind children is the way that they conduct their warfare. And then, so people who just blame Israel out of context, it's like, it seems like they're just saying, well, Israel has to take whatever insults and attacks are offered and do nothing in response. Well, good. It's unequivocal. And uh, I wrote a column about it, really honored to be uh featured with hyperlinks in your Colorado pickaxe. And as I listened to 126, I heard you describe what you try to do, which is pick out the gems in the Colorado media. So I thought, wow, I think I had a couple of paragraphs uh, that Ari thought were gem-worthy. But I I criticized the DU chancellor who said, we're not going to take a side in this geopolitical dispute. And that really set me off. And Peter Boyles, he came on and said, I'm not going to take a side. It's like during the Holocaust. Well, I'm not going to take a side. And you know what? There was that shitty treaty of Versailles and the Jews did this and that. You know what I'm saying? This was a black and white issue. And one guy you quote throughout your book who's dead on, great podcaster, Sam Harris. Have you heard him on this issue? Yeah, he's been excellent. Um, another person I've quoted quite a bit is David French, a Christian writer. Yes. And he's also been good on this issue. Anybody who observes this understands it's a complex situation. And if you are going to ask me, what's the ultimate resolution here? I can't tell you with, I can't give you the definitive answer. But at the point of the Hamas's, the horrific Hamas assault, I mean, at that point, morally, I think you're required to take a side. And you come out against Hamas, right? You come out against Hamas and that sort of atrocity and intentional terrorism, intentional afflicting of harm on civilians. Babies. And, yeah, women. I mean, hor- horrific violence. So 
drawing a moral equivalency between the Hamas assault and Israel's attempt to root out Hamas, the Hamas threat, um, I think you should really start to question <laughs> um, where you're coming from and maybe question your alliances if people you thought were your friends are suddenly sounding a lot like exactly what a neo-Nazi might say about Jews. Right. And then you see people on the right who are okay with the Jew hating. I mean, it's remarkable to me. I brought up Peter Boyles and I, I just come from this world and he's aged now, but he still fills in for George Brockler. And, and he has always been anti-Israel. And I'm trying to figure out why, because look, there are things that Israel has done wrong, but I think it's the same thing that produces the birtherism. There's a bigotry and I'm learning more given what happened in Dublin last night about Irish bigotry. I mean, I've been studying this in Sinn Féin. I don't know how much you know about this, but Michael Collins and the IRA, and they are simpatico with the PLO and uh, Hamas. And now there's this tension in Ireland as regular Irish parents are saying, no, we, we don't like this Hamas. We don't want it in our streets, this and that. I don't know if you followed it, but there are so many different ways people come to hate the Jews. And part of it's in your book, part of it's in uh, their religious books, right? And it's you're brave enough to put in your pickaxe what was taught in Aurora. I put that on my podcast, what that Iman Mitchell was preaching in Aurora. Is it, should we put that out there? What are we supposed to say about this? If it comes from religion, just like you're brave enough to take on Christianity as a former Christian now, and, and your book, Getting Over Jesus, and it's it, it, it's a great book. I recommend everybody read it. I'm not saying you should believe everything already says, but could you write a book saying Getting Over Muhammad and, and still have, uh, you know, security there well you know ask uh some of the people who have been attacked i mean ayan hertzi ali still has to have a security de detail wherever she goes so that she's not attacked um so did Sarah builders who just got elected in the netherlands who i once introduced at the colorado christian western conservative summit he's going to be one of the most influential politicians in europe so there is a backlash that's happening, Netherlands, Ireland, what's going on in the world? Well, I want to I want to kind of bracket that for a minute because that's sure. really important. I agree. And I have, I think it's something that, it's a complex issue, but I want to go back to why do we have this renewal? You'd think after the Holocaust, we would not be talking about this, at least within the span of decades later. But one thing is, I think a lot of students, like my, both of my biological grandfathers fought in World War II. So to me, the war is not in living memory, but people I know, it's in living memory of people that I personally knew. So to me, that's it's just a very visceral area of history. I think a lot of younger people today who don't maybe have those as close connections to that point in history are starting to forget which is extraordinary. But of course, you know, I walked through the gates of Dachau. And so maybe I've had some experiences along those lines that other people haven't had, or maybe I've taken the time to learn and read. But it is, 
extraordinary to me that the quote democratic socialists can have marches with people with Nazi swastikas uh, paraphernalia with the democratic socialists. What's going on here? How are we getting to the point where the quote far left and the far right are again converging that Jews are the enemy, that Israel should be wiped out as a nation, which is, you know, you've heard the expression, um, from the what is it from the, from river, the to the, river to the sea right so and we've don't heard, have any guys like craig there i mean no jews june fry i mean it's the same thing the germans did and gaza jews and arabs used to live together and then we said okay we'll give you gaza and they said all jews out you all have to leave i mean that's what they do so when you start with where does this come from it comes from their holy books. It comes from their clergymen like Mitchell and Aurora, and I'm sure it's much worse. You, you can watch this, and Jews are just demonized. But let's lead back into the other issue you were raising, right? It's not, not all Muslims are anti-Semitic, right? And there's a lot of, obviously, there's extraordinary anti-Semitism in the history of Europe. I mean, I can know- Can I just say Muslims are great people. They're just like you and me. It's it's what you write about. And I love your book because the dignity of every human, they deserve all the dignity in the world. And they had no choice in anything. So any Muslim is just as good as any Christian, atheist, or Jew. That's for sure. But we're talking about Islam. I, we're talking I, about I, Islam is a totalitarian political system that has a lot of fascist elements to it and systematic Jew-hating. So that's a problem. Well, Islam, not so, Muslims, Islam. So a lot of people use the term Islamism to sort of separate out the totalitarian versions of the religion from sort of what we might call the mainstream versions. And of course, some regions, it's much more culturally accepted than others. But I mean, if you go to the United States or Canada, that's not what we're finding in the mosques, right? I mean, I've seen enough videos of Hamas's, you know, Hamas's instructional videos where they're interviewing children saying, yeah, we need to just, you know, we're killing Jews is like the thing that you grow up learning that you need to do. So that is certainly a problem. And it's certainly tied up with the idea that Islam should become sort of the global caliphate through violence. And that should be the, gover the, the governing law everywhere. So it's certainly tied up with that. And that's a, that's a powerful and frightening movement. And I'm glad that people like Sam Harris are pointing that out. At the same time, I don't want to get caught up in this, the, the reaction on the other side to demonize all Muslims. I don't want which to is, do that I really, I really worry about that. And I think the problem with immigration in parts of Europe, I mean, so we've seen some politics in the Netherlands where people seem to be increasingly worried about immigrants, particularly from Muslim regions. That's complicated. And I think part of the issue is that depending, it, you need to be able to integrate people into your society and not have basically the equivalent of slums or ghettos where you have a lot of immigrants who are not interested in integrating into society, who are not interested in working or maybe not able to work because of the legal structure, right? So I think if you're going to have, you, you definitely need policies that are bringing people into your society, not creating angry ghettos within your society 
that's creating a lot of cultural clashes. So, you know, how you address that, I don't know. I think the United States generally does a much, much better job at bringing in immigrants and integrating them into America. But, you know, America's always been about the combination of people. It's We've always been about the immigrant, at least uh, the better right. aspects we, of the we country, should right? Be, right. And obviously, we need to love our Muslim brothers and sisters, without a doubt. Well, look, well, who's, but we don't need to love an Islam that teaches a little girl in Aurora that a Jew is like a monkey or an ape. And it's not an isolated incident. They draw on actual passages. And whereas Christianity has had a reformation, and so has Judaism, where there's, I mean, I don't keep kosher, and I'm not worried about any enforcement. And most Muslims are like that, too, in America, in Canada. But we're talking about a world that Israel has to live in, where they, the Jew haters know we can always pull on this string. And, and believe me, there are right-wing Jewish nuts who say, we get this land in Judea or Samaria because it's written in the Old Testament bullshit. You, you don't get it that way. Nobody has a divine right to anything. And that's kind of what your book is about. But I, And I'm not vouching for everything Herd Builders has done in the last 11 years, but I'm telling you that I met the guy. I read his book just like I read yours, it's called Marked for Death, about his experience being marked for death after Theo Van Gogh was stabbed to death on the streets. And he's been fighting for uh, people to be able to talk about this, just like you and I are. And John Andrews uh, had me introduce him. And it, it was interesting. I, I just reviewed it. And I'm going to play it on my podcast. But I'm going to get back to you right now. Ah, uh, you can see what's on my mind. Well, and, I, I want to, yeah, I want to explore that for another couple of minutes. Yes, if you don't please. Mind. So, oh, I mean, we remember the Danish cartoon disaster, right? Yes. Where they put out these. They weren't even offensive if you look at the cartoons. They were just political cartoons, like you would find about any other topic. And the whole Western and world. And this came. resulted in, yeah, and it resulted in extraordinary violence, and ultimately that was linked to those horrific attacks in France, also. And, against and who? bloodshed. Against who? Uh, um, well, they, well yeah, at we the theater, but also at a Jewish deli, if you right. remember. But I do think it's important to remember here that the 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 biggest victims of Islamist, if we could say that, terrorism, to this totalitarian movement, are Muslims. Yes, they are the ones who are taking the brunt of this kind of violence just like gaza right now exactly and in many other parts of the world where you have this sectarian violence it is the muslims who are paying the heaviest toll not to minimize the toll that others are paying right but just in terms of numbers i mean look at the look at the girls and the women in afghanistan and look at how horrible their lives have become since the united states withdrew whatever you think about our policies there it's undisputable that the lives of women and girls in Afghanistan have taken a dramatic turn for the worse. Okay. And they're Muslims. So they are the biggest victims. I also did want to point out, this is more relevant, directly relevant to my book, because my book is you know, talking about specifically or most emphatically Protestant Christianity. But let's remember that many of the pogroms, many of the much of the violence against Jews in Europe was motivated by this idea 
that the Jews killed Jesus. Now, if you think about it, that's kind of absurd because Jesus was Jewish, right? So it's like, it takes a certain kind of mentality to to square that circle <laughs> where we're going to hate the Jews because the Jews killed Jesus who's a Jew, right? Um, like it's just, but the type of people who take that seriously aren't really looking to make sense of it, right? They're looking for a pretext. Nevertheless, that was a pretext. And there's an interesting element of the Bible. And I don't think you really understand. You, you can't fully understand that until you look at the fact that Rome was the occupying empire of the day. So who killed Jesus? The Romans, obviously, right? They're the ones who drove the, who drove the nails, right? The, the Romans killed Jesus. So, but the, I think Paul very much, Paul was a citizen of Rome. Paul, Paul very much wanted to Romanize Christianity. I mean, one of the books of the Bible is Romans, right? So you can't have the Romans. You don't want to have the Romans be the villain in the story. You need right? a different antagonist. Yeah, we want, but what, who is Paul also clashing with? He's clashing with the traditional Jews, who want the old law. They think, right, they, there's a certain element of Christianity who wants to maintain the old law. And Paul's saying, no, 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 we don't want that anymore. Mm-hmm. We're, we're fulfilling the old law, basically throwing the old law out and going with this new stuff where you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to keep, you don't have to be kosher, right? So he wants to make this friendly to the Roman Gentile world. And so in this context where you know, and the Christian the Christians are facing persecution within the Roman world, in some at least in some some eras, right? Pretty severe persecution at times. Right. So they're very concerned with making Christianity Roman friendly, and obviously that worked because it became very Roman friendly, and Rome became very Christian friendly, right? For and that and then what is sales pitch? Here's all you have to do: Jesus is your Lord and Savior. Accept that. Doesn't matter what she did before. How can you compete with that kind of sales pitch? She just can't, can you? Well, it was obviously compelling to a lot of people. But so then, but just to wrap up that point, sure. right? So the the villain, the bad guys of the story became the Jewish religious leaders mm-hmm. who then were sort of tricked the Roman. They basically tricked the Romans, according to the story, right? Into, ki- into k- killing Jesus. And so that's how that worked out. And that, but that kind we're, of like- We're, we're clever like that. <laughs> But that sort of uh, that sort of story and storytelling became the basis of hundreds of years of persecution of the Jews throughout Israel. Right, because so, you're saying Paul was considering his audience, right? Well, I don't, yeah, I mean, he he wanted the Romans to embrace Christianity because they were high rollers, right? I mean, the the, the Roman Empire was rocking. It's it's like the New York Yankees of the day, right? Yeah, I don't think the goal was to make Jews the enemy. The goal, I mean, it was to make this the, the certain sort of Christian Jews who wanted right. to maintain the it's old like law. It's like sucking up to Trump right now. You got to blame everybody but Trump. Trump is, because I do want to tie this to Trump and current events, because it occurs to me that what happened since last we talked, it's kind of been my bailiwick, but I want to hear it from you. Just like I want to, we're going to get back to your book, believe me. But I want to talk about Trump because since you've been here, he's been charged four times, five if you count the superseding indictment, many more if you count the civil cases. I think he's caught dead to rights. As I wrote in the Colorado Sun, right after he got indicted, it's all going to be 
the battle of the continuances, and I'm hoping Judge Chutkin can win, and uh, that case in D.C., Jack Smith's big one will go, because Judge Cannon's not going to do anything. Bonnie Willis has done a bit. Last time you were here, Jen Ellis made you cry. I have tissues right there, but uh, just just take that, and, and, and here's my point, okay? I think Putin kind of controls Trump. I think Putin says, you know what I can count on when I want chaos is that the Arabs don't like the Jews and that if I stir up some anti-Semitism, including in Ukraine, and if I can stir it up in America and get it divided, General Mattis said, we're going to, you know, this." as he left Trump, he said, this guy's like a Nazi, the way he's trying to divide us. And all these Nazi terms and it's a year later and it's coming closer. And I see Trump behind it. And they say, we're going to use Jew hating to our benefit. We're going to turn it up on the oven. Elon Musk is going to help us. We talked about him on episode 126. And as a Jewish person, I'm feeling the heat. And then we'll get to your book and how they turn it on the Christian burner too, the anti-Semitism you just touched on. I just wonder how you incorporate all of these things going on. Well, of course, in Trump language, you and I are both vermin, according to one. Wasn't that unbelievable what he said? And and I I don't want to interrupt, but I just got to get it off my chest. The fact that my colleagues, your colleagues too, Brockler, Kaplan, Boyles, nobody brings that up. It's an obvious fascist, Mussolini, Hitler-like thing. He talked about poisoning our blood. And nobody will say shit. They'll speak up about Tim Hernandez, and so will you and I against Elizabeth Epps. That's Jew-hating there. But they won't say shit about the Jew-hating on the right. And Peter Boyles, who used to always have on Robert Spencer from Jihad Watch to talk about radical Islam like we just did, he won't do it anymore. Why? It's like the Irish Republican Army. They unite over anti-Semitism. So many people do and then you bring in the Christian elements, and we're feeling the heat. I'm going to shut up, and thank you for letting me do that rant. Well, I want to. There's a couple of important threads there that I want. I would like to get to, and I want to start. I think with the Christian treatment first. So I was talking about some of the Christian pretexts for violence against Jews. There, today, there's also a. I consider it rather strange, theological support within pockets of Christianity for Israel. But it's it's not so much that, you know, we're allies with the Jews and we want Israel to succeed. It's more of a theological point where the state of Israel is somehow playing a role in God's plans for the apocalypse. And so there's some really strange theology there, if you get into the, like what Pat Robertson used to say about this kind of thing. And so this helps explain why you get somebody like Representative Lauren Boebert who is a Trumpist through and through, but saying some supportive things of Israel. And so I agree with her on the superficial level, but if you look at the reasons why she's saying this, um, I'm soon going to, we're soon going to find some serious differences, right? So I don't want to say, I would say mainstream Christianity is pro-Israel. Most Christians are pro-Israel for the common sense reason that you and I are pro-Israel, right? It's a civilized, basically civilized, basically decent country. Does it have its problems? Yes. Does it make mistakes? Yes. And 
in the in part of the world where frankly it is surrounded by people who want to kill all the Jews there and drive and just obliterate that country. And so it's but in so insofar as people are religiously motivated, right? Then you're getting both sides. You're getting sort of the anti-Semitic side that comes out of these these long traditions of the you know the the Jews kill Jesus line of line of thinking. And, but you're also getting this pro-Israel side for specifically theological reasons. So it's a very confusing and peculiar sort of blend. But I want, but but if you want, I'll transition to Trump a little bit because I do sure. I do talk about sure. and, Trump. And, I, and what I want to say is that uh, Trump will stir it up, but ultimately I don't think he's a friend of the Muslims, as he's proved before. He, he's only a friend of himself, as is Putin, and he's ultimately, I think. Putin and Trump want to remain in power on the pledge that only I can stop radical Islam. Look what I did in Chechnya. Look what I did with the Muslim ban. And so myself, really worried about the threat from the university professors and uh, radical Islam, I I hear the people, I mean, I hear Dan Kaplan say it and other people on the right, you've got to elect Trump. He's the only one who can save us. And look how great it was when he was in office. You know that argument's coming. That's why I think they're stirring it up so that he can avoid these prosecutions and ride to victory on the strongman horse. Well, I wanted to talk about Putinism first. Please. Because it is strange, right? Even recently, I can't remember the woman's name who wants to run for Buckseat, but she ended an interview saying, you know, she's- Deborah Plora? Yes, she's like I'm against the communists. Yes, and I'm like the Cold War is over, lady. But is so the Weld County commies? But it's interesting that American conservatism used to be almost defined by its opposition to Russia, Soviet Russia at the time, and so it it has made this remarkable transformation, where now we have the same anti-communist people, right, who are also Putin lovers, Putin who was worked in the Soviet regime. Okay, so how did this this remarkable transformation take place? And I think the simple explanation is, well, part of it's just alliance, right? Um, The enemy is, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and Putin's the enemy of some of my enemies. Although in fairness, Putin's not really a commie anymore. He's just a kleptocrat. He's a mob boss. He's He's the furthest thing from what Karl Marx envisioned. He would would succeed in any sort of a corrupt authoritarian regime. He would fit it in, you know, with whichever sort of authoritarianism is the flavor of the day. Right. So he, yeah, I don't, I don't for a second think he was an ideological communist any more than he's he would just say he was, right? Um, but I think a big part of what explains this is that he has taken this sort of, he's become much more friendly to religion. And in fact, the local churches to him have have taken a very strong pro-Putin line and pro-war in Ukraine line, right? So that is getting a religious background in Russia by the religious establishment. And the fact that he's become friendlier to religion and hostile to LGBTQ community, for example, I think has made Christians much more likely to sympathize, in some cases openly sympathize with Putin, in part because, you know, they hate the same people Putin hates. To, but to that's some just degree. a means to an end. You don't think Putin's a true believer, do you? He's he's a he's like Trump. He's a true believer in himself and right, his own power. But he's not a true Christian. Oh no, oh God, no. He's not a true he's he's not a true anything. He's a true Machiavellian, just like Trump. 
right? He, right he's just that, playing a part. Did you read that Trump, after the Iowa caucus loss in 2016 in Iowa, is getting quoted in a new book saying these evangelicals are a bunch of dumbasses, and he disparaged them in a variety of ways. Well, this is the great paradox or contradiction or irony here, is that if you were to list all the people in America, the popular people, who are sort of the most anti-Christian in their personal behavior and in what how they act and what they say, Donald Trump would make the list. He'd be at the top of the list, depending on who else is on it, right? I mean, he's just a despicable sort of guy. I mean, he's not, you know, <laughs> he's not he's not there listening to the Sermon on the Mount, taking notes, okay? That's not Donald Trump. And yet, the Trumpism is, to a large degree, driven by evangelicalism. It is an evangelical movement. In fact, without the evangelical support, there is no President Trump. There is no Trumpist movement. And so that to me is just one of the great, I mean, if you're an alien looking at human history, that's got to just seem so bizarre and strange and darkly humorous to you that Trump is the leader of this large evangelical movement. And so one of the things that I mentioned in my book is just how religiously themed the Capitol assault from January 6th was. Right. If you look at what they said on the floor, like giving this, this big speech, this big prayer, I believe it was in the Senate chambers, and these people you know, doing this public prayer. If you look at all the symbolism, um, if you look at the, the cross, there's actually a cross drawn on the gallows outside, the, the makeshift gallows outside the Capitol. Not, it wasn't For even Christian Mike Pence. But to me, it's like Donald Trump read your book and said, how can I exploit these people? And there are so many different ways to exploit true-believing Christians. And it's sort of sad. And he uses them, abuses them, and they come back for more. And it's partly, well, it's partly just the habit of well, I think it's the habit of going, of being irrational, right? You believe things for not good reasons, which I say is faith, right? That's what faith means, is believing something without adequate reason. There's, of course, more to it than that, right? There's this idea that God works in mysterious ways. God can pick a political leader who may not be godly, but God's like using him to God's ends. So like in that, in that worldview, Trump is kind of God's stooge or patsy. Right, God's doing stuff that God wants done, even though you know Trump is probably going to hell. Right, if you're, <laughs> if you're a Christian, you might wonder if Trump is going to hell. Right, just based on the way he acts and behaves. But nevertheless, you could say, well, God is using Trump for godly ends, such as getting a Supreme Court that overrules Roe v. Wade. Okay, if you're a Christian and you're if you're a pro an anti-abortion Christian, maybe you think, well, God's showing His plan there. Yeah, but think about the language there, and I know you have, and you were pro-life at some point, now you're pro-choice. We discussed that on episode 126, but people who use the words holocaust to describe what happened with abortion uh, or genocide, just like now, when you hear words like that tossed around, get ready for violence, get ready for anything goes, because during the holocaust, I would have done anything possible to stop it, right? And so... If you start using words like that, uh, those are really triggering words. And doggone it, 
the people who favor the pro-life movement, I guess the means justify the end, right? And and I just think that's to the detriment of us all. Yeah, and the deeper point is, if you go, if you have the mindset that God's going to use these, I probably said, I mean, let me say that again. For for those people, the end justify the means, and I I just think, wow, that could be the end of our civilization if you if you take it that far. Well, well yeah, think. You got to think about what you can come to rationalize if you start thinking along those lines, right? Um, oh, well, this horrible thing has happened because it's in God's greater plan. Well, you can start to accept a whole lot of really bad things if you take that super seriously. And in fact, people have been using pretexts like that for a long time. I mean, this idea, I mean, you know, that's a whole, John Locke's first major work of politics was trying to tear apart this idea that the state authority is ordained by God, right? That's been a big problem for for a long, long time. Um, and yeah, and people, you know, people will try to take advantage of that. It's you know, it's super easy to say or to imply to your followers, yeah, oh yeah, you know, I'm I'm just fitting into God's plan here for this greater good. And- I just realized I've been I've been part of these debates for a while. You know, the whole separation of church and state. Even when I was in law school, well, where is that written down? And and eventually, these guys persist to the point that they have a speaker now, Mike Johnson. We already agreed, I think, that Putin and Trump, they're not true believers. What about this guy, Speaker Michael Johnson? Uh, he definitely seems to be. I haven't followed him in great detail, but yeah, he seems to be one of these genuinely religious conservative figures who is a true believer. And in in the end, does it really matter if somebody can put on a good enough act that they're a true believer? Does it really matter what they think? In a political sense, often no, but it, it does. But I think in, in some cases, it's pretty obvious that people are genuinely motivated. Like even Lauren Boebert, I think it's clear that she has genuine religious motivations, even if she has some, um, let's just say she might not be the deepest theological thinker about issues of religion, but nevertheless, she has a serious religious side to her that's part of her motivation in in her political movements. Um, what makes you say that? Because uh, you're so quick to call Trump a grifter. I, I'm not saying Bobert is a grifter, but I, I'm not as confident as you are. But I, I'm not. I haven't been to church like you've been to church. Well, you don't hear Donald Trump talking about the apocalypse, talking about the end of days, talking about Jesus coming and how great this is going to be. You do hear Lauren Bobert talk about things like that. Um, so that leads me to believe that she has some serious beliefs there. Like I said, even if they're not, not maybe um, completely thought through in every in every respect, um, I think she's definitely seriously religious. And what you know, whatever again, whatever you might think about her, um, some of her personal issues, which you know she's had a messy divorce, so I don't want to pick on her. They almost made a mess at the Buell Theater if um, the usher hadn't intervened. Anyway. Uh, yeah, you know, you know, I think she's actually it, in real trouble in her election cycle. I think that she has a good chance of losing in the next cycle. But nevertheless, she clearly has sincere religious beliefs in a way that Trump clearly does not, right? As as clearly as obviously as Trump is definitely not a Christian. Um Bobert, what, I think is. What's more scary? The people who just use Christianity as a political tool or the true believers? Yeah, I mean they always work in concert, right? 
I mean, they always work in concert. I mean, we, I think we talked about last time about how deeply Christian the KKK was a hundred years ago here in Denver, here in Colorado. I mean, that was a fundamentally Protestant movement. And at the time they were really anti-Catholic because they were more worried about the Catholic influx more than the Jewish influx. They certainly hated Jews and black people, right? But it was primarily motivated by anti-Catholic biases. And so... And I had Alan Prendergast in that chair talking about gangbusters. That's right. That's right. It's fantastic. The Denver DA, the hero of the story. And to me, it's a lot like what I'm accusing Trump of doing. The Klan wrote in on the pretense that, hey, there's a lot of crime here around Metro Denver. We got to clean it up. You know, it's these minorities coming in and nobody can do it except us. And sure enough, Colorado turned over the reins. And luckily we got them back, but it was a problem a hundred years ago. And I don't want to, I don't want to imply that this is sort of typical of Christianity. I mean, most Christians were not in the KKK a hundred years ago, right? Most Christians today are not Trumpists, right? at least in the mm-hmm. most vicious ways. Um, and then there's a lot of Christians, such as David French, who are writing against those trends and who are very much afraid of the authoritarian tendencies in their own movement, in the broader Christian movement or Protestant movements. And so there's a lot of pushback definitely within Christianity, and I'm glad for the pushback. But nevertheless, I think it is it is worth pointing out that evangelical Christianity is hardly a stranger to authoritarian movements. That's just you know the facts of history. And I think it's- All right, and there's nobody who pushes back harder than you. And it's so good to talk to you because I dare say in Palisades, you didn't know a lot of Jews. We talked about this on episode 126. There was a fair amount of Mormons. Yeah, I had so- I had Mormon friends and I had Catholic friends. Uh, I don't believe I had any. No, that's I'm not. I don't think I had any Jewish peers. My dad was friends. There was a a Jewish college professor that my dad was close with in the Valley. By the way, when you went to Pepperdine, I had on coach Tom Asbury, who's not only in the GW Hall of Fame with me, but he's in the Pepperdine Hall of Fame for being a great basketball coach. There are two different runs. So I have featured Pepperdine before. Was Asbury there when you attended? Do you remember? I'm embarrassed to say I didn't follow it. All right. Well, we'll figure it out. We can do that. I did go to some basketball games, but you know. Well, yeah, they were pretty darn good. And your book is really good. And the thing is, it's got a hell of a start because one of the key things about Christianity that's different from my religion is hell. And before I go there, I just want to say that you are smart and I call you a public intellectual, but you predicted that I wouldn't like your book. And I think I know why, because I listened to the end of 126 and you had me define what kind of Jew I am, which I'm not afraid to do, but I said that I'm religious. And I said at one point that it makes more sense to me to become agnostic than atheist. And now you write a book about being an atheist. And we went back and forth about Ayn Rand, who became an atheist. But I, I, I think you misread me because... I don't have to agree with you, and I'm not necessarily right about it's smarter to be an agnostic than an atheist, but the one thing I don't think 
your book is aimed at Christians or people who are thinking about being Christians. So I felt sort of like an outsider reading it because the thing about being a Jew, and I even talked about this with my 21-year-old son, you know, we're not stupid, you know, and, and so we're living in a Christian country. So by the time you are an adult, you've heard about Jesus. You've heard that he died on the cross to get... Well, you explain it beautifully, the whole faith. that you and, and, and it's like we scratch our head and say, wow, that's... And then he rose from the dead, and it's like, okay. And it's like... And, and then you explain it in your book. You either have that faith or you don't. It's not something you can prove. Am I right? That's right. And then, so it- so Jews, Jews, we've heard it, and most of us have said, it's, I don't know. But if you're raised Christian, you probably approach it a different way. So you suggested you, hell is not a big part of your belief. Do you know, I mean, I assume some of your Jewish friends still, like, in some serious way anticipate the coming of a Messiah? Isn't that still yeah, yeah, standard? Yeah, yeah, right. And here's the Jewish belief. We okay. talk about this world and the world to come. What okay. is the world to come? We don't know. And we don't get, even though it's Satan is a Hebrew word, we don't really have the devil like you guys do and you write about that. But our religion it's kind of simple, kind of not. There's some Old Testament stuff that's troubling, but we don't do any of that anymore. Nobody tells us we need to do it anymore, but it's just God. And Abraham had a discovery, you know, that rock that you're worshiping or the moon, that ain't happening. It's something, that ain't it. I got something better. It's more nefarious, a little bit it's in you. And so uh, it's greater than you. And it's easy for us to figure, yeah, there is probably something greater than us a creator, sort of like our founding fathers referred to it, right? Sort of nebulous. It's Jesus that gets specific. It's like there's a nebulous God, and then Christianity creates a human messenger, and it's a whole new game, right? Well, that is the good news. That's the gospel, right? That Jesus came to die for our sins, and that act is what allows our reunification with God Follow, you know, after the fall of, Ad- of uh, Adam and Eve. And that is what enables us through grace to enter heaven for all eternity. Enter heaven as opposed to going to hell and burning forever for all eternity, right? Those are the two basic options. There are some details about, well, how does purgatory work out? And such, there's some debates along those lines. But basically, ultimately, you're going to heaven or you're going to hell. And for how long? Ever. Yeah, it's eternity, right? It's eternity. Oh, boy. Like I said, there's some some ideas about purgatory and how, how there are some alternate ideas. And, you know, this is not universal within today's Christianity. There's a lot of Christians you will talk to who's like, no, hell hell is a myth. Hell's not real. Like, they might say heaven is real or something. Um, so I'm not going to say every Christian believes that. But that's kind of standard traditional Christian um, theology. And so, well, let me, let me back up for just a second. So there is some politics in my book, and we've been talking about politics a lot of the time, but it's not really a political book. What I was trying to do is to write the book that I wish I would have read when I was like 17, 18. Because, you know, as an older teen, younger adult, I had sort of a crisis of faith. There's this ongoing crisis of faith where I was doubting my religious upbringing, but wondering, trying to work through that, and then wondering what would replace that. 
And I did not always handle that transition well. I made some mistakes in my life that I wish that that, that if I had thought more, more carefully about how to embrace a new lifestyle, I wouldn't have made. Okay. And there's just, there's a lot of intellectual baggage and trouble that came with that. So I tell one story in my book. So you were talking about Satan, right? Well, within the, at least evangelical Protestant traditions in the United States, right? Demons are a real thing. Like Satan is a real thing. I mean, I'm, I'm, this is not hyperbole. I know a lot of people who aren't raised in those traditions might think I'm not being totally serious, but I totally am. Okay. If you listen to what they say, they like, uh, who's the, who's the pastor? Who's a representative? Uh, uh, anyway, if you listen to his, I mean, there are a few of them. Uh, his name's it's Skippy. Greg Locke. No, no, no. In Colorado, he's from he's from the Colorado Springs area. Anyway. Oh, but Scott Bottoms. Yes, exactly right. If you listen to his actual sermons, he talks about Satan and, the, and demons a lot in his sermons, right? Right. And did and, you hear why he said Israel was attacked? Yeah, I did. I, yeah, because I wrote, they hadn't accepted Jesus. Go yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. That's why I remember it. Scott Bottoms who plays the guitar while he preaches this stuff. Um, I haven't seen the guitar playing, so I can't yes. comment on his musical abilities. But yeah, he's made some very unfortunate comments about a lot of things, honestly. But here, I just want to point out, right, this whole demon thing is very serious. And so one idea is that Satan can cause you to doubt, specifically doubt your religious upbringing and your religious faith. So, I mean, now it at my age, I look back at that and it's hard for me to take that super seriously. But I remember, I remember being traumatized emotionally by this thought that my doubts about my religious faith were being planted by Satan or, you know, one of Satan's minions or something, something like that. And like I said, now I talk about it and it's, it just seems strange. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, is that, yes, did that no, really happen but, to me? But, but that's why but it did. I, I wasn't brought up that way. And so that's one of the things I had to work through is this idea that Satan was causing my doubts about religion. And so that if you fell um, away, that you might go to hell. Yeah, exactly. And, and that, that go, that's part and parcel with the fear of hell, right? Burning for literally being tortured in a lake of fire forever, right? There's nothing, nothing worse than that, right? Absolute, right? Horrible thing. So you want to avoid, you have a, if you really believe that, right? You have a big incentive to try to avoid burning in a lake of fire forever. Right, you, die, uh, you can't die right. again and have respite. You're just somehow alive in hell, or at least existing in hell. So I think, I think it's important to say that throughout your book, you really don't write a single harsh word against Jesus Christ, right? And you accept that he lived. Some people dispute that, but you accept that he lived, and you don't disparage him in any way, shape, or form, right? All of this sort of happened after he died, right? Well. I think that, so So just to finish out that one last yes. point. So this book is largely the book that I wish I could have written at that stage in my life. Just going through some of the intellectual development that it took me much longer to, to reach. And then some of the practical, like how do you, you know, what values should you actually be pursuing instead of things that are bound up with religion? So how do you get a handle on a secular lifestyle. And I don't want to make a joke because it's serious, but part of it is it kind of stopped you from masturbating. And for whatever <laughs> reason, I didn't masturbate till I, I don't know who I was in college or something. It's like it wasn't Jesus holding me back. So maybe well, you well, weren't look, so I mean, read, the broader you know, point is there's a you, lot you of, weren't that late. You know, there's a lot of 
um, se- guilt over sexuality within mm-hmm. Christianity. And, you know, in Catholicism, masturbation's out, sex before marriage is out, sex using contraceptives is out, right? And so now as a Protestant, we didn't have a lot of that. So it was kind of an open debate whether masturbation was in. Now in my line of, of Christian church, gay sex was definitely out, right? That's that's definitely immoral in my church. That was the, that was the view. Um, so there's just generally a lot of guilt bound up with sexuality within a lot of various tr- Christian traditions, which plays out in various ways, you know, according to which tra- tradition you're in. I noticed... Well, you were just talking about Catholics, and one of the roundhouses you threw was at the Catholic clergy and the idea of celibacy. You don't pull punches, and I I feel a little restricted as a Jewish guy. You know, when I would talk with Dan Kaplis, and he'd say, oh, it's very rare, and teachers do it more, and I'm like, well, teachers don't need to be celibate, you know, but can you talk about these things? I feel as a non-Christian that maybe I can't. Well, there's also been some major scandals of involving sexual abuse within some Baptist churches, Jewish I mean, other 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 Christian denominations. So it's not just a Catholic problem, but I do think that there's sort of a they sort of create a perfect storm within Catholicism because you say priests are celibate. Well, you know the sexual sexual desire does not just go away because you say you're celibate. And then they give them extreme authority over other people's lives with confessional and things like this. So they're authority figures. And then you don't have much, you don't have monitoring. And then you don't have, this is not part of the theology, right? How it worked out is there was a lot of excuse making and passing people from one institution to another to try to cover over, paper over the problems. And so, yeah, these have been, I have some deeper ideas of why, um, of how Christians come to excuse bad behavior sometimes. And it has to do with a combination of original sin, which is more of a Catholic doctrine, but my church had a comparable doctrine. It's not like you're born sinful. You just become sinful. You got to earn your, you got to earn your stripes in some sense in my tradition. Um, you got to go to the Buell theater and get a little busy on the, but right. something along those lines. But at any rate, everybody in fact is a sinner in my tr- religious tradition. You're just not born a sinner. You got to well, do something. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm with you so far. Everybody um, sins. But what that, but you add that into then, okay, we don't get into heaven by our own actions. So this is this is a huge. This is one of the huge debates within Christianity: the relationship between faith and works. Okay, but the the mainstream view is we do not get into heaven by anything we do. It's the grace of God through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And we accept that we accept God's gift, and that's that's what gets us into heaven, right? It's a gift of God. It's not something we do. And so, when you add together original sin, and then this idea that salvation is through grace alone, we can't do anything to, to become. We can't do anything to overcome our sinful nature, other than accept God's grace, right? We're just we're just sinful. We are sinful. We have fallen from God. We are. You know, other than without God's intervention, we're all doomed to hell. Okay. In my religion. So what gets us, what reunites us with God is God's sacrifice of his son on the cross for our sins. That act allows us through grace to enter reunification with God in heaven. Okay. But so then you have, uh, I can get, I can ask for God's forgiveness 
through through Catholic traditions, it's more of the confessional. Through Protestant traditions, it's more direct prayer to God. Okay. So you have this idea where, well, we're sinful anyway, right? And so I forget which which of these religious pastors who was caught up in a sex scandal, scandal basically said that. It's like, well, look, you're all just as bad as I am because have you ever lusted after your neighbor's wife or anything like that? Okay, so if you've ever looked at Playboy, <laughs> that's the equivalent of whatever him having an affair, okay? And so we're all sinful, right? We can Nothing we can do can overcome our sinful nature, but we can ask forgiveness. And so you... I get, another example is uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. You know, she was kicked out of a committee at one point. But it's it's all the same formula. I'm a sinner. I've right. asked God to forgive me. And now we're all going to forget about that because I don't want to talk about that anymore. <laughs> Here's so, the cool thing that just happened when you were talking about this gift that God has given. It's not through works. Just take the gift. Just take it. And the people who say, you know, no, thank you. I think that bothers the gift giver. It's like these fucking Jews. You know, why won't they take this gift that we're giving them? We're trying to save them. They won't take it. That's what Scott Bottoms was saying. Yes, it is. And and so they're saying, you're all going to rot in hell forever. So, you know, if you don't accept it, then... If you get killed, well, you weren't going to live forever because you were never going to accept Jesus, and therefore you become a little more expendable. And I don't know that that kind of leads to anti-Semitism and gay people. Well, they're they're lesser too; they're more expendable. And we've seen this through fascism. And the thing about Christianity, I always thought it's kind of harmless. It's based on love, a gift, and you say, "Well, thank you." I I appreciate what you had to say. Thanks for coming to my door. But, you know, we have a mezuzah and we're going to stay Jewish. It's kind of the faith of my family. Hope you can respect it. But people people feel duty-bound to You didn't write a lot about that, but the duty to proselytize. You felt it as a kid. I mean, Jews were not allowed to proselytize. What's that like to proselytize? Well, it wasn't very successful in my in my case, but you know we were nevertheless that is a calling to go and spread the word through all the nations, right? That's the that's the primary that's the primary thing you're supposed to do as a Christian. You've been saved now; it's your obligation to God to go and save everybody else, and every that means everybody else, right, in the world. Um, which the Spanish had some different ideas of how to accomplish that. Different people have had different ideas of how to accomplish this, right? Some more violent than others. Yeah, that Inquisition was no fun. And then you've got Islamists coming with the sword saying no Jews in our neighborhood. And by the way, we want to take over the whole world too. Remember 9-11? And it's feeling like the Crusades as a Jewish person. Well, here's one of the things. um, Oh, so one thing I write in my book is I'm not expecting for Christians to read my book and change their minds, Okay. There are some who are in sort of in the position I was in. They're seriously already questioning their faith. And then I think that people will be more open to reading my arguments, reading my line of my line of thought and following me. However, I do think Christians can profitably read this book because there are definitely some negative strains and tendencies within aspects of Christianity. And if you're aware of them, you can avoid them in your own life and in your own religious beliefs and practices. And I think that that would be, for me, that's great, right? If Christians become a better 
embrace a better in better forms of Christianity. To me, that's a big win. That's a huge win. Just like we would like Muslims who are currently um, under the thrall of these totalitarian ideologies, we would like them to embrace better forms of Islam. Do I think that Islam is fundamentally based on metaphysical truths? No. But I would like, I, I much prefer reformed Islam, reformed Judaism, reformed Christianity to unreformed versions of those things. Here's one of your power punches apropos of what you were just talking about from page 48. Pretty much anyone strongly devoted to an ideology and related social movement similarly experiences meaning in life. If Christians can claim to find meaning because of their doctrines, then so can Muslims, Hindus, Marxists, and environmentalists. Here we must consider that the quality of one's intellectual commitments ultimately can affect the meaning that one finds in life. Undoubtedly, the 9-11 hijackers found some corrupted meaning in their demented act up until the moment when they incinerated themselves and thousands of other people. Ultimately, a person tends to find the most meaning in life by believing things that are true and by forging his values accordingly. Insofar as Christians base their lives meaning on false doctrines and on values stemming from those doctrines, they are more likely to reach poor outcomes and to become disillusioned and disappointed in life. Moreover, embracing false doctrines often involves some level of self-deception, which undercuts a person's capacity to find life meaningful. Although Christians and people of many religious faiths can lead highly meaningful lives, they could lead even more meaningful lives if they rationally embraced true beliefs about the universe and their place in it. And that's the good news from your book, which is, hey, there are other ways to find meaning in life. It's a beautiful thing. Enjoy every day. But uh, come on, you're taking it too far, right? Well, do you mind if I back up to this? Yes, the, please. The, proselytation, the proselytization yes, bit of do. it. Yes, do. Because I do think it's kind of confusing for outsiders to understand why there's such an impetus to go and spread the good word, right? We're going to spread the good word to you, whether you want it or not, right? Um, but it's really important. And part of this is the dynamics of this belief in eternal heaven versus hell, right? If, if you are talking about an eternity, literal eternity in heaven, there is no, literally no, think about your temporal life on earth. Any value you could achieve in your temporal life is against eternity in heaven, literally worth nothing. All right. On the other hand, if somebody is on earth is threatening the eternal salvation of someone else, say by, you know, spreading on anti-Christian doctrines or false doctrines or heretical doctrines, right? You believe the wrong kind of Christianity now. Okay. This could, this could undermine your potential for salvation. This is a huge problem, right? Well, I don't get that. How does it undermine your salvation? Because we just agreed that all you have to do to get into the kingdom of heaven is accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And you said works weren't required. So they don't say, how many Jews did you convert, right? Right. But what you're accepting matters a lot, at least to certain types of Christians, right? So in my church, uh, youth, you had to be baptized, right? Works, it, it's a strange, it's a strange relationship, like I said, right? Right. So here's the way that I was taught in my denomination. You're saved through grace alone, but if you're saved, your works, in other words, your lifestyle will reflect the fact that you're saved. 
So the way that you act, acting in a Christian way, sort of confirms or is in harmony with the fact of your salvation. So if you're acting in a bad way, then that is an indicator that maybe you're not really saved, right? So in a way, there, there's a way to kind of backfill and make the works important, at least in some contexts. But it also matters a lot what you're accepting, right? You have to actually accept God's grace. If you're accepting this other doctrine, well, that's not God's grace, right? That's a lie. Like even in, in, to some people in my church, Catholicism was a corruption of God's grace. If you're a Catholic, you're not accepting God's grace at all, right? You're not, according to some people in my church. I mean, I think that's a crazy view, right? Uh, okay, um, now I'm thinking like a prosecutor because St. Peter at the Pearly Gates, is that a Christian concept or just a joke line? Anyway, somebody's going to have to judge intent like they're trying to do with insurrection. Okay, what was your intent, Mr. Armstrong, really? You know, when you said you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, didn't you write this book back in 2023? And you'll say, hubba da bubba da, but I, in 2027, I changed. So will they examine all your works? And is that why you need to do it? Because you say, look, I spread your word. I, it's more indication that I get into this eternal heaven. Well, that's it's, it's a paradox, right? Because... There is this kind of stereotypical view that you have to go and make your case before God. Well, you know, look, I, I contributed to the to the puppy welfare fund. Okay, so I punched this guy out in the bar. Well, okay, but I also, you know, but that's so, but that is in conflict. It's an, just, there's an inherent conflict. There's a conflict within the New Testament about this. There's a conflict within tr- Christian traditions about the relative emphasis of these things. Um, that's all I can say, right? It's 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 a mystery. It's like the Trinity, right? They just somehow fit together, <laughs> and that's all I can. That's the best I can do. Um, oh, dang it! Now I lost. No, no, but, but let me bring it back because the thing about being a Jew is we don't have this heaven and hell concept, whereas Islam has paradise, seventy-two virgins waiting, all of that, and the hellfires, the eternal damnation, and we don't have any of that. And here are these gigantic religions, both committed to heaven and hell. And really, I think Saul Bellow, didn't he write Carpe Diem, Seize the Day? I mean, that's what Jews want to do. Sort of like you wrote in your book. Every day is beautiful. It's a new world. We're alive. Enjoy it. And these people who want to kill us say, no, it's about eternal damnation. It's about this and that. Hey, just let us live our lives. And they don't want to hear that from us. And that's part of the reason I think they want to shut Jews down. Well, I think that that is a good comparison. I mean, if if somebody is seriously convinced that by killing a bunch of Jews or other people, that they're going to get go to paradise forever and have their however many versions. 72. Um, I hear that's based on a misinterpretation of a line in the Quran. But any that be that as it may, right? One version, that's pretty good in paradise forever. I mean, if you're, I guess, I guess you can argue. <laughs> but um, but it does come that from their motivation. holy book. So, I mean, I, I mean, that's yeah, what we have to but, say. And the, the beheading stuff, that does come from but, their but holy here, book. But here's where I think Sam Harris is right, right? A lot of people on the American left just refuse to believe that people are motivated by what they say they're motivated by, right? So when somebody enthralled to Islamic totalitarianism kills Jews because he says he wants to enter paradise, right? And be a martyr for for God. They're like, no, 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 no. It's because you were uh, economically oppressed by the Americans or the Jews, right? That's why he did this act of terrorism, right? It's just this refusal to believe that people mean what they say. (laughs) 
Okay, that's uh, what I think we've established so far, at least insofar as America and the people we know. Most Muslims are decent. Most Christians are decent. They love America. They love us. They're good neighbors and friends. But there are strains, both religions, that can cause problems, right? And Well, I think it's important. Um, a certain amount of religious tolerance is essential. And part of this is theological, right? If if you think if you're Christian, but you think, well, Catholics are fine. If they're you're a good person, basically the idea if you're gonna be if you're a good person, you're gonna make it in, you're gonna make it into heaven, right? That applies to anybody. If you're a good Muslim, you're gonna make it into heaven. If you're a good Buddhist, you're gonna make it into heaven. If you're a good atheist, you're gonna make it into heaven. Of sort of humorous section in my book, it's right. If if I were constructing God, right, he'd be the kind of person who rewarded you for being rational. So if God doesn't give you enough evidence that he exists, then God would want you to not believe that he exists, right? And so he'd be like to the atheist, wow, you're, you get the special place in heaven because you were using your, your right. noggin instead of just believing stuff that other people told you based on authority. Um, way to go, right? So I, I, think, I think that's right, because one of the clear purposes of being here, in my judgment, is not to waste all your time trying to figure out why you're here or, or get too caught up in that. Do you know what I mean? Because it, you're never going to get to the bottom of that. But it's almost impossible if you have the theological belief that what you believe determines your entire after forever, eternity. And if you corrupt someone else's belief system, you could be costing them, trading off an eternity in heaven. Instead, they'll get an eternity in hell. Like that's a, like an infinite harm, right? You can't do worse. Like that is literally, there, there's no way to weigh it at that point. It's infinitely bad. Whether you, you're Hitler murdering 6 million Jews or you're somebody who's costing one person to salvation, it's still weighed on, this, on the scope of eternity. It's infinite, right? How do you, what's, what's 10 times infinity? Infinity, right? So when, you're, when that's the, the scope of your thinking um, and you think that people are corrupting the wrong beliefs, it's really hard to move those people safely out of any potential authoritarian movement. In other words, it's really easy because then, like you say, if the scope is eternal damnation versus eternal salvation, well, pretty much anything goes as long as you, what you're, as long as you're increasing the number of people saved, right? It's real. So I think that on a theological grounds, I would at least like people to get to the point where they're not saying Catholics are going to hell because of the way they're baptized, right? Be a Protestant, Fine. Be a more enlightened sort of Protestant who's not saying that their Muslim neighbors and their Catholic neighbors and their atheist neighbors are going to hell because of what they believe, right? Because I just don't, at a certain point, you can't move past beliefs like that without giving those beliefs up. Right. Um, so so I, I get where some Christians come by this through their religion. And, and some Muslims through Islam. But what we were talking about these universities and the people who are secular, who have this Jew-hating, and I'm struggling to figure out where that's coming from. And somehow in the business community, I think a clue is people like Henry Ford and Charles Lindbergh. And what's going on with these people? Why are they Jew-haters? Can you figure it out? Not completely, no, but I think... Elon Musk, too. I think I've hinted at one of the strains here, um, which is that they don't... I mean, 
what is Marx's whole thing, right? Is this material, material, emphasis on the material dialecticism, as opposed to the Hegelian, which is a more of a spiritual force dialectic, right? So for Marx, the whole thing is economics. And then you get this line of thinking about, well, how people even think is bound up with their economic conditions, right? This is core to Marxism. And so if you seriously believe, which is ironic, right? Because that is a belief structure, right? <laughs> which you're not believing because of your economic conditions. It's So it's inherently um, paradoxical. But if that's what you really believe, you, it's, you just can't take seriously these ideas, the, these theological motives, right? You think, well, look, the people in God, Hamas exists because of America's hegemony in the world. America's propping up this illegitimate power of Israel. And it's, you know, the damned Israelis who are persecuting the Palestinians and put, keeping them in a state of poverty. And, and there's no other way, or I won't say there's no other way, but it's an easy to spin a story along those lines and to then cast Israel and by extension, the great evil America, um, as the bad, as the villain, right? It's really our it's our fault as Americans because that Hamas attacked for Israel. the underdog. But why can't they review the real history, like the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem throwing in with Hitler during World War II and the dirty deal they had to divide up that land and get rid of all the Jews from that part of the world as well? Why isn't this taught? And the roots of that extend to Abbas, the head of the PLO, who wrote his dissertation, "How the Holocaust Never Happened." We're aware of these things. There are Jew haters all around. So how are you going to make peace with these guys when they embrace Nazism? Hamas and Nazis, they're the same in the way they treat gay people too, right? And they're to, to a degree, fascism. To a degree, it's a huge propaganda effort. I mean, do you think how how much do you think the Hamas leaders really buy into sort of Marxist materialist doctrine? Not at all. But they understand the dynamics, which is one reason why the leaders of Hamas were willing to accept Palestinian victims of their atrocities. But are they, are they the operating way, on Islam? I, I think those people. Yes, who, but it's also diabolically ingenious propaganda because they are adopting the language of the America hating left yes. <laughs> to cast America and Israel as the vil the real villains of the story it's the villains aren't the people who actually invaded israel and were you know raping women in the streets and just shooting people indiscriminately that they were the oppressed people and they're only acting out because they were oppressed right they're the oppressed party and the oppressors are america and america's backed ally of israel Right, and, uh, look, that's at, the and look at and is part of it. Look at the skin color. Most of these Israelis are whiter than the people on the other side. Or well, it's not necessarily true, by the way. But it it is it is strange now how apparently Jews are white and Asians are white. Um, you know, this is all these are all just arbitrary categories. But yeah, I've heard language along these I never along these lines, right? That. I've never this checked is, the white box ever in you know, my That Israel is is part of the white supremacist, you know, the, whatever buzzwords you can think of from the left are they're going to bring into play here, right? It's part of the it's part of the American hegemony, it's part of uh white white supremacy um the, this American support of Israel against in this case um the Arabs living in the in the in the neighboring area. Even though 
I mean, you know, a, a fairly large minority of the Israeli population is Arabic, right? So yes, um, it's, it's quite a terrible situation, a little intractable, and it's going to have repercussions in our elections. Who's winning on the streets of Europe in America? How does this all turn out? Well, my personal fear is in the inner how the hard left, America's hard left, and sort of the alt right, the nationalist alt right, so in many cases the Christian nationalist alt right, play off of each other and demonize the other in a way that masks their more fundamental similarities. Well, you saw, yeah, I wrote this thing about horseshoe politics for one of my columns, right? And how it's uncanny sometimes how the hard left starts sounding remarkably like the hard right. And And look at that word you used, demon, demonize. Right. Right. It it does come down to that, and we're getting uh, trapped in the middle. I, I just think you were so brave in this book at several different points to call things out. I just want to read, I need another book because I read this like a law school book because there were so many great passages. You write, perhaps Christians are more likely to give to charity, which often means to groups concerned with religious proselytizing, but many secularists are increasingly interested in charities that improve others' lives. The effect of altruism movement inspired largely by Peter Singer works towards creating a prosperous long-term future in which people and animals can thrive. The nonprofits give well and the life you can't save us focus on directing funds in the, to the most effective charities. I think what I was getting at there is you, you write about how you can have meaning in your life and do a lot of great deeds without a religious basis whatsoever. Right, and one of the things that that discussion is coming out of is the obvious fact that a lot of people do find real values in their religion. So just to take an obvious example, I moved around for a few years a lot when I was younger. And one remarkable thing is you could always immediately plug in to a church of your denomination in your new neighborhood. Um, because there's just so many churches of so many denominations in so many places. Now, in so- certain regions, you might have to be not quite as choosy, right? Depending on what churches are available, but there's most strains of Protestantism are pretty compatible or at least, yeah. And so think about how easy that is. If you go into a situation, a new town, you know, nobody. Okay. You suddenly have a hundred or 200 new friends who will treat you well. You know, they're not looking to take advantage of you. Generally speaking, um, it creates a social network that's extremely valuable. And so I, so one of the things I'm talking about is Okay, is there are there things that we can do even if we don't believe the religious beliefs that maintains those values? Well, in the case of our social circle, yeah, obviously we can develop friendships and intimate social ties and and a healthy marriage marriage life if we're married, healthy family life if we have kids. And so I'm I'm trying to talk about these ways that we can sort of secularize the better the good aspects of Christianity. Uh, I even quote, you know, I quote elements of the Bible that I quite like. So one thing I talk about is how some Christians become overly passive because they're saying, well, God's just going to run my life for me, right? And th- there was a song that I listened to when I was a kid. It's like, let go and let God do it for you. Okay, well, at a certain point, it's like, when do you recognize when God's asking you to do something for yourself, right? 
So, but I, then I quote um, one of these old, older Bible passages about the uh, the busy ant and how he, you know, the, the ant is out there creating, right. gathering, the, gathering the from the field. The its own reward. Or, and so, yeah, it, it's basically like, you know, get off your butt and go make something of your life. Yes. And so there's some, you know, aspects of Judeo-Christian tradition, which are wonderful and which we can learn from. Just like we can learn, we can learn a lot from Homer's works, as horrific as aspects of Homer's works are, right? Um, there's a lot of a lot of lessons we can learn in different traditions, and there's a lot of things we can learn from Christianity, and there's a lot of values that people get from Christianity, such as building a tight social network that you don't have to be a Christian to embrace. You don't have to be a Christian to have friends, to be nice to people, to not always be trying to like get the better of somebody in some kind of superficial way. Like you can just have genuine friendships where you value being around the other person because of who they are, right? You don't have to be a Christian to reach friendships like that. Um, and then some of the other other things I was saying, I'm, I'm responding to something Jonathan Haidt wrote about the, the the positive side of Christian Christianity and how a lot of Christians do tend to be generous, and they do. Um, but like I said, a lot of some of that generosity comes across in in being especially generous with having proselytization efforts right? Which may not be as generous to the receiver as one might imagine, but a lot of these are just genuine charity projects. Um, and I'm, I'm only pointing out that seculars can do this too. Right? right. You can, you can go, you can go online. This is look, this is the day after Thanksgiving that we're recording this. Yes. It's during the Christmas season. Oh, I wanted to make sure that I remember to, Tap as an buck. atheist, to wish you a happy Hanukkah and oh, Merry Christmas you. season coming up. Thank you. Um, but there's nothing stopping anyone listening of whatever religious faith or no religious faith from going on and donating, donating some money to the food bank of the Rockies or to give well, or to, there's a, there's a group called give it directly. They want to give money directly to some of the poorest people in the world, which I think is a pretty good idea. Um, you know, you don't have to be a Christian to enjoy some of these social values that are crucial for a full and rich human life. Right. So, so that's, that's part of my, Part of my point um, is explaining, okay, if not Christianity, what instead? Atheism, look, atheism is not a philosophy. Atheism just says, okay, I don't believe in God. And we didn't even get into why the difference between like agnosticism and atheism and these sort of um, nuances. But, But for now, let's just take the word atheism, right? It's not a positive philosophy. It's just saying, well, I don't believe in God. Well, then what do you believe in, right? That doesn't say what you believe in. So what I'm trying to say is I'm not just i'm not just an atheist right i'm trying to to define for me what is a positive approach to life a positive philosophy for life because like i said i mean you know i struggled to integrate and develop and embrace this for part of my life and so i respect that a lot and i'll tell you what shines through is you're trying to do right by your son and it shines through in everything you write you're trying to pass on to him values and i'm just wondering if you feel like a turncoat at all, do you feel like you're betraying anybody? Because I can tell you that even though you were steeped in a religious tradition, it's not quite like being Jewish, which isn't just being a religion. Uh, it's a culture. It's an ethnicity. I got a kick out of Jason Saltzman's fine review of your book. But, you know, even though he is an atheist, I'm sure that when Hamas comes over, he'll be considered a Jew just like me. 
Do you know what I'm saying? It's, and But the thing about the Jewish people, and, and then I'll let it go, is that without the religion, which, you know, I, I question my faith. In the last show, we talked about wrestling with God, the story of Israel. I, I wrestle with it, and Jews are expected to do that, okay? But if if there's no Jewish religion, then the Jewish people would fade away. Have you ever thought about that? Well, Judaism is unlike other religions in that there is this separation of tradition versus the metaphysical beliefs. I mean, if you say, I don't really believe in God, you're not kicked out of Judaism, right? right? But if you try that in an evangelical church, they're going to be like, hmm, you know? Can I just say, I asked the rabbi who lived next door, BMH owned the house next door. We didn't go there. But Rabbi Steinhorn, who was from South Africa, one day, I think my ball went into his yard. Hey, rabbi. And he said, how are you? And I was maybe 15. And I said, you know, I'm not sure I believe in God. And he said, I'm not sure I do either. And and then he tossed the ball back to me. Something like that. That's the way I remember it. So it's the point that you're making. We're allowed to we're allowed to wrestle with this in Judaism. Yeah, and I and that's one aspect of the Judaic tra- tradition that I think other people would do well to embrace. Um so no, I don't feel like a turncoat. I feel like I would have betrayed myself by not saying what I really believe. I think a lot of I do think coming to that point, I think because of these reasons, especially in certain sects like Mormonism, if you're enmeshed in a Mormon family, deep in Mormon country, it is not easy to leave your religion. At least not if you want to live there within your community, right? You are pretty roundly shunned. Now that's not the kind of situation that I grew up in. Okay. But depending on where you are in the country, which kind of religious movement you're in, it can be really rough. So I, I didn't have that kind of experience. Would it be where, rough on you if you still lived in Palisades? Um, I don't think so, partly because, I mean, today Palisade is largely a retirement community, that area. And it's, you know, it's a, you, it's a college town. And there's, like I said, it's right up, it's part of Mormon country or on the outskirts of Mormon country. So there's, just, there's automatically, you know, a healthy, a healthy Catholic community. So there's automatically enough diversity that you know people of different, um, you know, different persuasions. I have a Sikh friend who lives in Grand Junction. Um, I guess so, one, one point I'm, 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 I'm trying to get at is that Jews were just a tiny group of people, 18 million or so in all. We've replenished since the Holocaust. Now we're getting slaughtered again in Holocaust-like events. Christianity is so massive. So is Islam. So you leaving, it's not going to be a big dent, right, or anything like that. Well, what's the long-term future? I, sometimes I think, dang, Judaism got all this started, and maybe that's the problem. And then Christianity was kind of a rejection of Judaism or built upon it, saying, hey, you need another book. And then Islam said, we've got yet another book. And by the way, we think he doctored the first book. Not a great start. And then Mormons had another book. But did Jews cause all this problem with just the first book and Abraham and Moses and all of that? I think it's worth looking back in history and looking at why people embrace religion and why they embrace the religion that they do in their era. I mean, a lot of the... Jewish religion is coming out of the diaspora and being having the temple raised and being kicked out of their homeland. And that's 
you know, you, you can't understand the Jewish tradition without understanding some of those elements. So I think it's enormously important to go back and try to understand the history. What was happening in Rome at the time, such that over a few hundred years, Christianity not only became, I mean, it went from being oppressed and literally killing Christians for what they believed to be <laughs> killing people for not being Christians, <laughs> depending on the context, right? Um, I mean, we just can't understand the world we live in without understanding the history. And you can, uh, I think you can appreciate the, some of the historical developments. You can appreciate what Paul was trying to do. I mean, there's something nice. There's something, there's something great about t trying to take a religious tradition and saying, look, it's not just my tribe anymore, okay? It's not just me and my family and the people that I know. And you're the outsider and you will never be part of our community. There's something beautiful about saying, well, look, my tradition can be your tradition too. And in that sense, it's a very um, expansive and open approach to ideas, right? It doesn't matter if you, you know, what you eat. It doesn't matter what you do to your PP. okay? It, you can embrace this, this approach to life no matter who you are. And in that sense, you know, we can learn from that. I mean, we can learn from the idea of Jesus being born in a manger. All right. That's a very beautiful story in a certain way. Okay. It's, it's like, okay, he's the son of God and nobody has room for him. Right. So Mary has to, you know, she, she's in a barn, right? We can learn from that, that to not diminish, you know, not diminish other people, look for look for who they are, look for the their humanity, right? There's a lot of beautiful things we can take out of Christianity and other religious traditions. And there's nothing to kill anybody about because it's a matter of faith. And I, I think that's sort of the frustration, but I think maybe it will be solved in your child's lifetime. We ended the last show talking about 40 years from now, and there have been big developments within the last year that I think impact Probably religion, because we are on the verge of incredible discoveries, right? Artificial intelligence, DNA, that was a while ago, but the web telescope, how does that impact the way we're all going to deal with religion in the future? One thing I've been thinking about is how people, some people want religion because it makes it, it makes our life feel like it's meaningful in a moment by moment experience. One where I, I, I recently, recently read a Christian post about how re religion makes your life enchanted, which is odd language for a Christian to embrace, right? An enchanted life because the Christians and the quote witches haven't always got, gotten along too well. Um, but nevertheless, people are looking for this sense of m magic in their lives, not literal magic, but this like feeling that what I'm doing is making a difference. Like there's something extraordinary about the universe around me, you know? But to me, you can get this sense by looking at, just open your eyes and look around you. I mean, if you can't find enchantment, you know, in a bee pollinating a flower, I mean, that's an extraordinary bit of evolutionary history, how that developed. I mean, if, if you listen to the old Carl Sagan, which I quote a bit of, the old Carl Sagan lines about how 
the material of our bodies is generated in distant stars, right? So his line is, we're made of star stuff. So how can you look at the universe, the extraordinary pageantry of the universe? How can you look at the extraordinary pageantry of life on earth? So here's this one little, one little thing. You know, birds are dying. Dinosaurs are not extinct, right? You're aware of this, right? So dinosaurs are still around. We call them birds. birds. Yeah. Okay. And so just recognizing this, right? Looking at a flock of geese and saying, wow, there's a flock of dinosaurs that are related to these, you know, 70 million year old creatures. To me, I mean, how do you not find that extraordinary and mind-blowing in a, in a good sort of way? Just like mind-expanding, I should say, right? I mean, how do you look at this pageantry of human civilization and the fact that we've sent people to the moon, the fact that we can, the fact that we're recording a conversation that, you know, someone in Africa could listen to tomorrow. How do you look at these developments and not feel just a sense of just overwhelming awe at where we are in the universe? And so that's part of what I'm trying to get at in the book is like, you don't need the religious coding to find these kinds of values, right? You can kind of find the value, you can kind of cut through the religious packaging into the, the real values underneath. And you were talking about, you know, my turncoat. I think the big problem is a, some people, a lot of people, I think, within Christianity, within various religions, religious traditions, are betraying themselves insofar as they're kind of trying to force themselves to believe something that they really know at some level is not true. And um, that's, that's, you're not betraying somebody else doing that. You're betraying yourself. I mean, you might be betraying somebody else too. And I think that it's worth pointing out that there's a, there's a liberation in this self-honesty and in being honest with yourself about who you are and where you are in the universe and what the nature of the universe is. Now, nothing I've said, I haven't even, we've got, like I said, we haven't even talked about the nature of God or arguments for and against God. But you can, you can have these sorts of, I think, epiphanies and believe that there's a God. And I think you can have these sorts of epiphanies and believe there's not a God. Um, and it's important to think that we can live together and I don't have to think that you're going to hell if you have the wrong beliefs, right? We can, we can create a society in which it's okay to believe that there's a God. Or that I need to kill you because yeah, it's okay you to have not. this belief. And, and you just used the word nature. And my gosh, your boy has to be so lucky because I can just imagine you talking to him like this at his level, which is probably pretty high. And if I had to boil down your book, one, it's, it's a good, fast read, and I'll put in the show notes all the, way to, all the ways to buy it. I loved it because you throw these hard punches, but it's optimistic because the book says getting over Jesus, but the subhead, finding meaning and morals without God. And you could just hear your joy in the natural world, the enchantment that's out there. Even in Colorado, you don't have to drive to New Mexico, the land of enchantment. It's everywhere if you just look around and it's growing with scientific discoveries and AI. So the word that you kept using to refer to God and Jesus is supernatural. And 
That's a word that you don't normally think about in the context of religion, but I thought, wow, that really makes sense. There are things that we can understand in nature, like you just explained to me about birds, and I bet you can back that up. So why reach to things that you can never explain that way, right? That's what you're kind of rebelling against. Why why go with fables that are beyond natural when there's so much in nature to just appreciate and, and learn from? Well, let me point out, so I'm trying to go through early in the book on the pause of positive vision for life that's consistent with secularism. You know, how do we think about ethics? How do we develop a theory of ethics that's object genuinely objective? How do we find meaning in life? How do we make a meaningful life for ourselves? So that's what I'm trying to lead with. But I do have a heavier chapter toward the end, which is basically arguments about God. And I'm tr- why does it matter? Well, I I think it's worth trying to know what's true. <laughs> Um, and then I talk about, so I talk about why I think that the concept of a supernatural God is ultimately not coherent, which is why I don't think, I, like, I don't think even, it even doesn't even make sense in a certain level. Um, but you know, like I said, I don't have to convince you of those lines in order to hope, hope to encourage you to rethink your religious doctrine if you're going to maintain a religious doctrine. So for just to take one example, right? There's a philosopher at the University of Colorado named Michael Humer. You quote him a lot. Yeah, I do. Well, I've read a lot of Was his stuff. Was that just to humor him? No, <laughs> that's a pun. Go ahead. No, I have thought I should create the uh, International Society of Humorists. Yes. Which, well, yeah, but um, so he, he takes seriously. Would he, would he be a good podcast guest? Uh, yes, but but yes, he's a very esoteric kind of thinker, and he. Yeah. So yeah, I'm not sure because some of the stuff you quoted him on was beyond me. Maybe graduate level. Well, I would. Here's what I would suggest. He has a couple of books that are very inexpensive through Amazon, which are his. They're basically like intro to philosophy books, and one is called I think Knowledge, Values, and Reality. I'm not going to do it. Philosophy okay. right, just. Right, there's, right. I can't do philosophy. So anyway, but here's my. He make he takes very seriously this idea that maybe things like the gravitational constant. Well, how did how come those things operate the way they the way they do? And one argument is, well, there's some kind of designer somewhere in the background, right? And he takes that seriously as one possibility. He's he's an atheist, right? But he takes that seriously. Um, now he thinks there's some other possibilities, like maybe there's a metaverse. Okay, so I'm not going to just say that you know you can reject out of hand all these, any, any argument for God. Now you can, so have you heard, I don't know if you read, noticed, noticed this, but there was a, somebody who run, won a school board race in Grand Junction, who's calling to teach creationism, like biblical creationism in science class, which is legally a no-no. And I think a really extraordinarily bad idea. Now her arguments are terrible. Right? You, you can reach You have to, if you're going to be a reasonable person, you have to reject the sorts of arguments she makes. But there's a lot of people way smarter than her who have a much better arguments than that. Um, but I'm but so what I'm doing in this chapter is sending out, you know, why do I think a supernatural god is ultimately not a tenable position as something that saying that that exists, and I'm coming out on the side that says no, that's not, that doesn't exist. So that's why I say I'm an atheist because I don't think that there it's I don't think it's possible for there to be 
the supernatural, all-powerful, all-knowing God. Um, Do you anticipate some scientific discovery that will make that clear? Well, one of the points I make, so there's there are a lot of atheists, including including Richard Dawkins, who will say things like, well, I'm not 100% sure there's not a God. I just don't think that there's a good chance there is or not good evidence for it or something like that. And so I'm sort of taking issue with some of what he's saying, but it depends on what you mean by God. And so there's a, you've heard the line, is it, I think it's Arthur C. Clarke. He said, any technology su- sufficiently advanced um, is indistinguishable from magic. And then Michael Shermer takes that a step further. He says, well, look, any being sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from a God. So I'm talking, so even um, like along Arthur C. Clarke, right? There's this idea that, well, maybe aliens sort of seeded earth somehow. Well, I I don't think there's no evidence for that, right? There's good evidence that that, that other things happened, that life evolved through other means, right? But it's not like, it's not metaphysically impossible. Like humans, we humans could seed another planet with life. We could terraform Mars, for example. And then if there was a scientist on Mars, they would go back and say, look at a certain point, life just started somehow. Right. And so what happened there, right? If they didn't know the story, right? They'd be like, there's an intelligent designer. And there was, it would be us, right? And so it depends very much That's on- why our children are supposed to look at us as gods, at least in my house. It didn't really hold, but- and so it, it very much depends. So then I get into Plato's idea of the forms and how that's influenced Christianity. And so I don't know how deep you want to get into that, but basically. No, but I, I want to get back to what I said that last episode. And I just heard you say again, I think somehow there's a spark of divinity and maybe it comes from an alien world, but a touch of the supernatural in you and me that we can have this conversation and it goes out there humans can do it in a way that dogs can't and our communication is godlike and we we have to figure that out it's a little uh i don't know if you've read philip k dick and uh a little bit some of that uh some of that imagery about the divine spark being in all of us maybe i just like that imagery but you seem to be doing okay without it i think well i think that i can say something very similar in secular terms, which is sort of the Aristotle's idea that we are the rational animal. And what our spark is, is our ability to open our eyes and understand what we're seeing. I mean, I can look at a star and understand phenomenally more about what's going on with that star than any other creature who looks, who sees that, notices that there's a star up there, right? And that to me is the spark, is this ability to deeply understand the na- the universe, the nature of the universe. Ultimately, there's still many mysteries left to discover and to commune with other human beings. Like you're saying, we are a cultural species that, so evolution isn't really, doesn't really explain human history anymore because what explains human history is our cultural inheritance and the fact that we can share ideas with each other. And in some sense, we are this super web of not of knowledge sharers, especially now with the inter- with the literal internet, which has its good and bad, right? But th- this is to me the extraordinary thing. And if you want to call that, I mean, I, w- I wouldn't use the word divine because of the etymology of the term, but to me, it's like extraordinary or awesome or amazing or 
profound the fact that we can can look out at the universe or reach out to the universe, be part of the universe, share this experience with other human beings. I can look in your eyes and other people's eyes and we both know that there's something really interesting going on behind each other's eyes. And one thing I do talk about is I talk about sort of our uniquely human experience and our, our just ability to have experiences, right? Almost mm-hmm. nothing in the universe can have experiences, can, can, can look out and, you know, pet your dog and have the experience of petting, you know, this soft, fluffy dog, right? Right. The dog can rub against a, a rock. The rock doesn't get that, right? Yes. So there is something there going on. And that is you, that can, is unique yes. to to conscious beings, yes. and this understanding is unique to us as human beings. This this level, this depth of conceptual understanding. I mean, you can teach certain gorillas sign language, certain other gorillas sign language, right? But um, you know, they don't. Humans are alone in our level of comprehending what's going on around us, and our our level of creating stories true or otherwise right about the universe and our place in it and our progress is so great and with artificial intelligence the learning curve so amazing we talked about people in africa can hear this but maybe not in china maybe not in repressive regimes and i'm worried about the light going out all over the world i worry about tyranny i worry about trump in particular and that's Part of the reason I do this podcast, the biggest reason, because I see people trying to put out the light. And frankly, it might seem egotistical, but I think that's why they want to put out the light of the Jewish people, too, because we we bring light to this darkness and we don't put up with this totalitarianism. And if you look at the Old Testament, Exodus, breaking away from slavery and domination, it was breakthrough at its time. And some people want to dial it back and put out that light. And I speak about Donald Trump because I'm worried. I'm worried about the anti-Semitism. I'm worried about his pledge of retribution if he's reelected. I've been outspoken, and so have you. So have you. Do you think about this promised retribution? And my God, did you ever think it could come as close as we are coming in America to hitting this disaster in my judgment well here to me is a big difference between my approach and then somebody like lauren bobert's approach okay lauren bobert explicitly sees trouble in the world and says oh this is a sign of the coming apocalypse this is good news right that's what that's how pat robertson dis- described putin's invasion of ukraine well i mean he didn't say it was good but it's bad right but at least it's a sign a possible sign of god's of jesus coming back the second coming so to me, here's a key lesson of having a secular mindset, or let's say I would say an enlightened Christian mindset, right? That doesn't take this apocalypse literally true. This idea that we are responsible for our world. I mean, we're obviously directly responsible for our own lives and our families, but as a group, as a civilization, we're responsible for how the world proceeds from here. And I have the same fears you do. We are on the precipice of disaster if things go. It only takes two crazy world leaders to launch a full-scale nuclear war. And we're one away. So, and there's nobody coming to save us, though. Here's the thing, right? Nobody's coming to save us. 
we got to save ourselves. We got to stop with the nonsense. We got to take things seriously, not expect, you know, somebody on a white horse to come in and save the day for us, right? We we launch a full-scale nuclear war. The Christians aren't going to go up in the clouds with Jesus. We're not all going to go up in heaven. The earth is going to be, our cities will be incinerated, okay? There's nobody saving us, which is horrible, but it's also an awesome responsibility because we also have the possibility of figuring out ways past these ancient biases, ancient bigotries, these ancient ways of thinking about, of, of casting other people as though they were demons, of, of putting other people in this metaphorical hell or literal, you know, we can, we can create hell on earth in certain contexts. Um, but we have the opportunity to move past those lines to build on our, our on our enlightenment traditions of you know what con- American conservatives at one point said they cared about. We're all created equal. We're the rule of just law matters. The security of the individual matters. Um, these are the things that American conservatives used to say that they were all about. I feel like they've strayed from that pretty remarkably these days. Um, liberty and justice for all. I mean, I don't know if that's ringing any bell still versus retribution against our vermin enemies. I mean, come on now. <laughs> um, right. What are you, a bunch of bigots? And then I say so, something like that and it drives people to their corner. I mean, it's a battle for hearts and minds just like your book is. And I'm not sure I'm always the most effective because I'm sort of like a bull in a china shop. I speak my truth and I hope it makes a difference. What I, I, you're more ambitious and you have a lot more people to reach with your book. And I don't know how you affect young people. And maybe it's going to take uh, some outside threat to pull us all together and come to certain realizations like they did in Israel as they faced the cataclysm of October 7th. So fill me with some hope because you, you've made a sincere effort to reach out to a whole group of people what is the right, how can we break through? How can you break through? Well, let me just say I'm extremely happy on the political level to find common cause with, I'm going to use the word liberal Christian. I don't mean that in the modern context of liberal versus conservative. I mean the American tradition of constitutional liberty, liberty in that sense of liberalism, classical liberalism. Um, I am extremely happy to join alliances with Christians of that persuasion, Muslims of that persuasion, atheists of that persuasion, Jews of that persuasion against these forces of broadly speaking, authoritarianism. And you, you know, you mentioned the communists, of course, a lot of Christians will hear my complaints about Christianity and say, well, what about the godless communists? They're the ones who really screwed up the world. And I concede that they really did. Um, now, you know, I think Marxism is a basically essentially a religious movement in certain ways, which we don't have to get into the details, but I think it's mystical. Let me say that. I think Marxism is mystical in certain ways. And so I don't really even regard it as secular. But anyway, there are many enemies of sort of a liberal, let's say a liberty loving rule of just law society in the world today. And I'm very happy to make alliances with people of different ideological, theological persuasions to make common cause against that. Um, 
But I do think it's important to encourage people to rethink some of these religious doctrines from whatever tradition, which are ending it, which are putting us in a bad place and putting individuals at odds with other individuals needlessly when we could be living together in peace and harmony and building the kind of world that we want our children to live in in 20, 30, 50 years. Now, how many people have you pissed off with this book? Uh, are there some people who are mad about it? And normally I might read you at Complete Colorado. Would they want to hear the message of your book? Um, so far, I've not gotten a lot of negative feedback. You know, it's a niche product. It's not widely known. It's not on the bookshelves at Walmart, right? But I haven't gotten any negative feedback. Um, I mean, good. not not substantial. I mean, I had some proofreaders and they had complaints about this, that, or the other um, details, right? But in terms of just all out attacks on the book, I haven't seen that yet. Although if you think about it, and I have, and I studied it deeply, your basic point is, one, I'm not buying Christianity. You can correct me. You're just saying I was raised with it, and I just don't reject it. It's supernatural and whatever. And while it's got some good qualities, which you've talked about, your book explains how it's really hurting us in many respects and leading to divisions in our country and problems. But you are a policy guy, Ari Armstrong. You know legislation, and I don't see you go to the next point of a policy prescription like take away tax exemptions. I bet you thought about that. Do you think that would be a wise move? Should we just not subsidize religion anymore because it's not really helping us? Well, I do very strongly take the view of freedom of religious, both sides of the First Amendment, freedom of religious worship, non-establishment of religion. Both of those things work in harmony. And if you, you cannot have true religious freedom unless you have the state not playing favorite, which is one reason why I don't want the state teaching biblical creationism as though it were science in science classrooms. If you want to teach it in the mythology class, I'm all for that or the history class, history of religion. I'm all for that. Um, but the, in terms of the policy, so what was the... Uh, um, I'm just thinking about the tax subsidies. Oh, yeah, yeah, the tax subsidies in particular. Okay. Well, <laughs> as you know, I sort of have um, a strong sort of, sort of libertarian background to my mind. So here's my thinking on that. It's like, well, churches should be tax exempt and so should ever, every other corporate entity. Right. So I don't think they should be no treated favor, favorably. Um, but generally... Let's I mean, see how they compete on their own. Now, now, look, the left always says, right, corporations aren't people. I agree. Corporations aren't people. Why are we taxing corporations as though they were individuals? So I think we, if we're going to have taxes, I think we should only be taxing individuals because corporations are just combinations of people. So we're just taxing people twice, essentially. And so that's how... I know that's not the solution you were looking for. Um, because it's pretty radical, right? Saying no corporate taxes. Um, but I do think that's the right solution. Um, I'm going to try it, to... In the, in the modern context, it, it does... I don't know. It, it creates a lot of problems because you definitely get churches. <laughs> oh, so did, I don't know if you saw this. Um, the, the Times recorder was covering this. There was a church group, uh, Womack. Do you know this name? It's one of these... Uh, one of these religious groups. Let me just stop for a second okay. because the Colorado Times Recorder, which is run by Jason Salzman, whose name has come up, widely considered liberal in their publication, the opposite of Complete Colorado, which is a product of the Independence Institute, where Ari's frequently written. 
And what do I read at the Colorado Times Recorder? A byline of Ari Armstrong, my friend. You've done it. 180. Well, you know, I like to, I sort of like to do surprising things in that way because I think it gets people to thinking. It's like, yeah, are the people, is Jason Salson my enemy? Hmm. Maybe not always, you know, he's a pretty good guy, actually. I, I like saw Jason. what you were fighting about back in the day. It was over guns, right? I uh, saw an article where you got on each other pretty good. I'm sure, I'm sure we did. And I still, you know, that's a big, that's another topic, which is- Jason sort of- and I have gone through all different kind of relationships too. But ultimately, as I said last show, as I say every show, it kind of comes down to are you MAGA or anti-MAGA? And Jason's anti-MAGA, so am I, and so are you. And so, you know, mazel tov on writing for them, because I think, don't you agree that that's what politics is about for the foreseeable future? Well, yeah, I do think, and in fact, there's an article by Cass Sunstein, I don't know if you saw it on liberalism, it's really interesting, but it's basically, as I see, just pointing out, look, the forces of authoritarianism are on the march globally. And it's scary if you think that that's a bad idea. Uh, so I wouldn't describe myself fundamentally as anti-MAGA. I would describe myself fundamentally as pro-liberty, pro-individual rights, pro-rule of just law. You know, We want government, Republican, democratic institutions that are sound, stable, um, peaceful transfers of power, right? These things are all essential to the kind of life that and we that should want to Donald be living. Trump. Right. Because so, I just listened to you on 126 and you talk shit against Trump as good as I did. And he's gotten worse in the last year, hasn't he? I agree. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I'm, so aren't you worried about the retribution? Aren't you worried for your boy and your family? Have you seen the polling? Trump's ahead in, in the polling I've seen. Yeah, okay. I don't, the I, shit I, don't, out of me. I don't think it's impossible that um, Trump wins the presidency again. He's won it before. We got through it. Our institutions did survive. But, you know, if he gets in again, it's not going to be like before. It's going to be he's he's pissed. He's angry. He has nothing else. He doesn't have anything down the road that he's fighting for. Right. This is it. So, yeah, I think it will get nasty. And I think it if Trump wins, I think it's going to depend on a large number of people who work for the government at various levels, including state attorney generals, election officials all the way down, um, deciding if they're going to do the moral thing and the just thing, or if they're going to cow to public and political pressure. And that does scare me because as we've seen, a lot of people are going to cow to public and political pressure. We've also seen some people stand up and do the right thing. Um, I know Liz Cheney, Ken Buck to to a large degree, even who's been called the Liz Cheney of Colorado. Um, he turned his back on Liz Cheney, who was a friend of his. So I don't really salute Ken Buck, but I will salute Liz Cheney. But the bottom line is, what are you going to do? Are you going to pull in your sails if Trump wins again? Because you're a lot younger than me. I mean, I'm sort of at the end of my race. So I'm going to run through the finish line. But I mean, I'm not going to keep hitting my head against a brick wall. I'm not going to keep spitting into the ocean. I want to keep Trump out of power. But I worry if he does seize power, then I think a lot of people will fold up. And this is how countries get ruined. And I have a big fear. That's why we cannot let this happen. And it seems like it might. Well, I'm one of those people who thinks that the United States, America, whatever its flaws is, 
an, an imperative force for good in the world and basically a wonderful and glorious place. And so, yeah, I, I, I worry about damaging the underpinnings of America, but what do you do? You know, I mean, I have this one thing I think about everybody says, oh yeah, if I was in the South during slavery, if I was in Germany during the rise of the Nazis, I would have been the person standing up and saying, hell no. But how many people really would be that person? You know, you've seen the picture of all the people giving the Nazi salute. And there's one guy standing there saying basically not, not doing that. Right. I mean, a lot of people are going to do the wrong thing when push comes to shove. And that sort of terrifies me in a way. Like I want to be the kind of person who would actually stand up and do the right thing. And that's tough to do. Can be tough. I mean, let's, we're the, we're in the United States. Nobody's been to my door. Nobody's thrown a grenade through my window or anything like that. Nobody's shot rounds into my house, which other people, other people, other people in this town have experienced things like that. Right. And so, um, yeah, I think in our con, I mean, look in certain contexts, if you're in a country that's going to hell at a certain point, you try to get the hell out and that's all you can do. But we can save our country. <laughs> I don't think that we have any choice other than to try and do what we can. And I, I'm not going to, I'm certainly not going to judge anyone who's done as much as you have um, on their subsequent actions, <laughs> but I will cheerlead anybody who stands up and says, look, the truth matters. Not, you know, we should not lie about other people. We should not be spreading hatreds and bigotries and these wild conspiracies. We should not be ginning up fear and hatred and anger and violence based on wild conspiracy theories because it resonates with people on some emotional level. We should be going for the truth. We should be going for a rule of law. And so anybody who is on that team, you know, team of individuals matter, we're going to, the truth matters, then they're going to be on my side. I'm going to, I'm going to say they're on my side, whether they want me to or not in some, in some cases. And, um, you know, hope for the best. That's all I can say. You're a tremendous public intellectual. And uh, you used to be a welcome guest on, uh, you know, right-wing radio. Now, one of the greatest things that happened, and I sort of put an end to it, uh, talking about it last week. It was four years ago that I got axed at, uh, while I was talking and excoriating Trump at 710, which was really a great moment because I don't want to be with those guys. And it allowed me to state unequivocally my opposition to Donald Trump. I didn't arrange it that way. They brought it on themselves. And now local media, I don't know if you've followed it, but they've replaced Stephen Tubbs with some guy named Officer Tatum. Salem Media, based on Christianity, is doing this with Hugh Hewitt and Dennis Prager and a bunch of other hosts, this Officer Tatum guy. Your book really should be must reading for people like that. But just my disappointment uh, that you won't be heard on those stations. For example, would Peter Boyles ever have you on? Would Dan Kaplis have you on to talk about why Christianity maybe uh, needs to be looked at? George Brockler, who I've, I've listened to that guy, really disappointed in him. And he talks about Donald Trump and he kind of pushes back and says, you people have such faith in him. He says, the only person I put that much faith in is Jesus Christ. 
that's something he'll take on faith. And, okay, and but I, I just worry that Jason Salzman wrote a great review of your book. I'm featuring you once again. But how are you going to break through to people, more Christians, to give your book a read and think about the ramifications and maybe give this book to their child who wants to explore these issues? Well, as you know, you know the media landscape is, can be overwhelming. So it's hard to break through, no doubt about that. And I'm not like a media superstar or anything. I'm not a house. I'm far from a household name. So, you know, you just plug along and do what you can and do a podcast here and send out a review copy there and uh, hope for the best. But the way I look at it is, you know, if I can sort of help even a handful of people, whether they end up Christian or not, rethink some of the turmoil that they're going through with respect to religious beliefs and religious practices, then I would consider that, I consider that a win. And so, you know, that's all I can do. All I can tell you is that I'm a pretty old guy, and you taught me about 20 new things in your book, really, about just Christian aspects that I would have never considered. So, Ari, you are a gift to our community. Stay strong. And uh, I can't wait to see what your son is going to become. Well, I'm pretty, you're, I think he'll probably be... Um, civilizing future planets well he's his own person and he makes he'll make his own choices and i don't want to i don't want to lay anything on him you know i've even told him look you know this is i believe this but don't believe something just because your dad says so because i could be wrong right so i'm trying not to lay <laughs> lay too much of my beliefs on him though we do have candid conversations but it's so, so weird though homeschooling generally i associate that with christian indoctrination and here you are just the opposite are there many people like you there's actually, I mean, most homeschoolers do homeschool because they're Christians for religious reasons, but there's a vibrant secular homeschooling community. In fact, I know more than one family who pulled their kids out of school because they were gay or transgender and were getting bullied in school. And so there are, there's a self-consciously secular community of homeschoolers in Colorado that are thousands strong. At least there's thousands on the Facebook groups. Um, and so, yeah, it's a big organization. I mean, it, there's a big network, right? And it's it's important. And people homeschool for a variety of reasons, which is one reason why it took me so long to get this book out because I'm spending a lot of my time doing homeschooling uh, efforts. But so far, I'm I'm really happy with my son's willingness to learn about the world. And um, for just from my perspective, watching him, it's just really nice for any parent, right? It's just a joyous thing to watch your child start to become a person in their own right and learn about and learn about the world and start to take effective action and want to take action in the world that start that, be, that becomes meaningful to them. See, I've and, never been a, a proponent of homeschooling, but if you were the teacher, I think it could work. I just don't think there are many Ari Armstrongs out there. And I think it would only be fair that you had about your son could invite nine or 10 friends over every day. Well, we do go to homeschool events where he does hang out with some of his friends. So No, but you should be teaching nine or 10 kids at a time. You're that good. And I bet you cover things so comprehensively at just the right age level. You are meticulous and one of the most gifted writers there is. Anybody should subscribe to Colorado Pickaxe. He makes that free. Self and Society, your podcast. It's amazing. And we didn't even get to the best part of the book. Do you know what that was? 
No, I can't. I don't know what you when you When you had my name in there? <laughs> yes, I put Craig in a, in a in note um, because of a, an article he wrote about some about Bob Enyer, right. who lived his beliefs to think that that guy was probably a true believer. He died. And the other thing I loved about your book is you brag about getting your COVID vaccination. That's where I know that, you know, that the right wing must hate you. But I feel 100% the same way. Now, how has your health been? I'm, I'm, I've, my family's been very fortunate to have good health for a long span of time now. And, you know. But you're vaccinated. Oh, yeah. And you have the booster. Right. And so do I. And you haven't had COVID. And thank God I haven't either. And here we're talking about God. I'm thanking God. But I'm thanking the vaccination, too. I mean, that's one of the strange things that's going on in America. Somebody won the Nobel Prize for that mRNA vaccine. It's worked like a charm for me, but it's led to political upheaval. What's going on there? You know, what can you say? I mean, I saw a tweet the other day that tied Jared Polis to all kinds of like bizarre conspiracies involving everything from Antichrist to Masonism. And, you know, people... Some people are just looking for things to blame. I mean, they're just looking to demonize something, right? Right. And to come up with excuses to go on the warpath, literally or figuratively, um, against others. So uh, the vaccination thing in particular, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> Trump is the the one good thing Trump did is he, he promoted Operation Warp Speed, which was the brainchild partly of economists out of the free market George Mason University. And he promoted that, which is why we have the vaccine. So that's the one point on which I will thank Donald Trump for his work in promoting the vaccine and also crowing when he himself got it. <laughs> so I'm going to tell like, my producer to mark this spot because I praise Donald Trump for that vaccine too. So let's cut that for when, if he gets elected, we'll put that out there, our praise of Donald Trump. Ari Armstrong and I, big supporters of his Fine work with Operation Warp Speed. But, but that's my that's kind of my general point, right? Is we should try to make rational sense of the world as opposed to playing into our existing biases, prejudices. Just because you wish something were true doesn't make it true. Just because you fear something is true doesn't make it true. We should actually open our eyes, you know, look out at the world, discover the facts, not get caught up in these echo chambers of the people who are saying the same thing back and forth to each other. And you hear it a hundred times and all of a sudden you think it's true, right? Bullshit flung around a hundred times smells the same way if you have your nose unclogged. Right. But it works for propaganda purposes. And all we can do is speak back. And that's what we just did for a good long time. I always enjoy my conversations with you. Let's make it an annual tradition and what are you going to do now about Christmas? Does that change? Merry Christmas. Do you put up a Christmas tree? I mean, frankly, being a Jew, it's cool because the holidays roll around and it's certain rituals and and you just get into a rhythm of that. But now that you are an atheist, do those traditions disappear or just change a little? No, I feel perfectly comfortable embracing those those traditions. And in fact, you know, I've mentioned there's some really wonderful things you can get out of the Christmas story and the birth of Jesus. And, um, you know, people born to very humble, they're in a very humble position, mm -hmm. and yet they have something very precious. And I think that that speaks to 
generally the preciousness with all which all parents regard their children. And so it speaks to this regenerative power. I mean, you know, older than that, Christmas, I mean, Jesus was born in the summer, right? <laughs> but it's tied to Christ- to December because of the change eventual, you know, because of the changing of the seasons right. and rolling the, the way that the right. And so it's this general idea of looking forward to regeneration of the world. If you step back and look at, you know, the beauty of life and the beauty of um, reforming ourselves in some important sense. Yes. So, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot there, just like a secularist can find a lot of great traditions in Hanukkah. You bet. And, and, uh, have you know, ever so, thought Christmas was created to kind of steal the attention from Hanukkah? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> they didn't have those kind of plans back then. I think it all started more innocently. Beautiful part of your book is, is there something in the human brain that needs to be filled with religion? There's so much in your book. It's affordable. We'll put it in the show notes. Ari, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and let's keep fighting the bastards, okay? Let's let's fight totalitarianism and, and people who just don't want to face certain truths. Thanks. Merry Christmas to you. Happy New Year to you. And uh, may truth and justice reign. The book, Getting Over Jesus, Finding Meaning and Morals Without God by Ari Armstrong. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show, but more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer, and I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if, you're, if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would, who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep, and I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887, or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book and appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey, thank you. Okay, here's the thing. You've been hurt. Maybe, God forbid, someone's been killed. You don't know what to do. If it happened in Colorado, please get a hold of me. Check out my website, craigscoloradolaw.com. craigscoloradolaw.com because I have four decades of experience. 
Sadly, I've helped a lot of people who have been hurt terribly through no fault of their own. 303-734-7156. Please call Craig. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. 303-734-7156. And now that was a heck of a show. Thank you, Ari Armstrong. Your book, amazing. Getting over Jesus, finding meaning and morals without God. If you want to hear more from Ari, go back to episode 126. This episode 183 was superb. Thanks again to Dave Gunders. I give thanks, his beautiful song, for our Thanksgiving weekend 2023. Thank you for listening. Please tell a friend, subscribe, share. Five stars on Apple would be just so fine. Maybe on Spotify. Go crazy. Do YouTube, too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show. <laughs>